Ariel Hawani's MMA show is presented by Modelo, brewed for those with a fighting spirit. Hello, friends. It's Ariel Hawani back for another Wednesday edition of the show. Hope you're all doing well. We've got a great one coming up with Anthony Smith and the legend himself, Jim Ross. I'm really looking forward to that. Jim was in attendance at the Saturday UFC event in Jacksonville, one of the few non-UFC people at the event. So I'm curious to get his take on it all. But before we get to all of that, if any of you out there are running a e-commerce business these days, you know how challenging shipping can be. These days, customers expect it to be flawless. That's why you need Shippo. Yes, Shippo. Let me tell you about our good friends over at Shippo. Shippo is the only shipping software for growing businesses that you can start today, set up in minutes, and then ship today as well. Because they ship hundreds of millions of packages, Shippo's volume discounts save you up to 90% off carrier rates. Simply connect your online store to Shippo. No coding or technical expertise required. They will instantly identify the lowest shipping rates from 55 plus top global carriers like UPS, USPS, FedEx, and DHL. Your orders are automatically pulled in and ready to go. Just click, print, and ship. Plus, automated return labels are free. You only pay if your customers use them. How about that? Companies that use Shippo save thousands of dollars, free up hundreds of hours of valuable time, and on average, grow 77% year over year. Join over a 100,000 companies like Goat, Hims, and MeUndies who are saving up to 90% off carrier rates with Shippo. For our listeners, they're offering right now their best discount available anywhere. Get a shipping consultation right now and Shippo Pro Plan six-month trial for free. Yes, I said F-R-E-E free at GoShippo.com slash Ariel. Again, that's GoShippo2Ps.com slash Ariel. That's up to a $700 value for free at GoShippo.com slash Ariel. Go right now and get your shipping consultation and Shippo Pro Plan six-month trial for free. Once again, at GoShippo.com slash Ariel. Oh, and one more thing, as always, listener discretion is advised. Back in your life on this Wednesday, May 20th, 2020. Hello again, everyone. I'm Ariel Hawani. Hope you're doing well. Welcome back to the program. As always, we are presented by Modelo. Modelo Especial, brewed for those with a fighting spirit. So I'm really excited about today's show because, of course, there aren't any UFC events this weekend. Getting a little bit of a break. There was supposed to be one on May 23rd, but it got moved to May 30th, and we're hearing some good news that it's looking like it's going to happen in Las Vegas at the Apex. That is a gift from the MMA gods and the Nevada gods for the UFC because they have this great brand new quote-unquote arena there, which will make their lives a hell of a lot easier, cheaper, all those things and more. It's going to be perfect for them. And it looks like the first event there will be the May 30th event headlined by Tyron Woodley versus Gilbert Burns. And then, of course, they're back for UFC 250 on June 6th. As of right now, the top fight on that card is Amanda Nunes versus Felicia Spencer for the women's featherweight title. But this weekend, we are off. However, we still have a lot to discuss from the past week. Of course, the UFC ran three shows in eight days. And probably the most controversial moment from those three shows was what happened during the second show. And in particular, during the main event of the second show it was Glover Teixeira versus Anthony Smith. 
And a lot of people still believe seven days later that that fight went on too long, that the referee, Jason Herzog, should have stopped the fight, that the corner of Anthony Smith should have stopped the fight a heck of a lot earlier. Well, in a matter of seconds, I will be presenting my interview with Anthony Smith, which we conducted on Tuesday afternoon, the first time that he spoke about all of this. We'll get his line of thinking as to why he believes the fight uh, should or should not have been stopped, how he feels about the referee, how he feels about the fight itself, where he goes from here, all those things and more. Following the interview with Anthony Smith, I got the opportunity today to speak to one of the all-time legends from the world of pro wrestling and combat sports broadcasting. You probably have heard of him. You probably know his voice very well. He was the voice of a generation for World Wrestling Federation slash entertainment for many, many years. Also VP of Talent Relations there for many, many years. Good old JR, Jim Ross, absolute legend, and is as nice as they come. He was one of the very few people who did not work for the UFC or fight for the UFC who was in attendance on Saturday in Jacksonville. He was at the fight headline by Alistair Overeem versus Walt Harris. Talked to him about that, how he got there, why he was there, also about now working for All Elite Wrestling, how he's uh, enjoying it or not whether or not he feels that he has added more years to his career. Also, a whole bunch of other stuff regarding Owen Hart and the documentary that just came out um, about his untimely passing, the Dennis Rodman to WCW stuff that was talked about on The Last Dance. It's just an amazing conversation that even if you aren't a pro wrestling fan, I highly, highly suggest checking out. I think you will love it. He is just such a smart guy when it comes to promoting and combat sports and just such a nice, um, sweet man as well. And so I really enjoyed that. However, first up, We're going to go to my conversation with Anthony Smith. Here he is, one-on-one, Anthony Smith, talking about the controversial finish of his fight last week against Glover Teixeira. Enjoy. First off, Anthony, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. No no problem, man. Uh, It's always fun to me when people lose and then they hide out. You know, they're they're always willing to jump on and show their faces when they win and and brag, but uh, I'm here no matter what. And I appreciate that. I I expect nothing less. Um, First off, most important, Physically, how are you feeling six days removed from the fight? Uh, my body feels really good. Uh, hands are good. Um, my legs are fine. Typically, my legs are pretty sore, and, and you just feel, kind of feel like you've been in a car accident, but I actually feel fine. Uh, my mouth and my, and my nose and, and face are a little bit sore, but for the most part, I'm okay. And so uh, you told me after the fight that you you broke your orbital, you broke your nose, and you lost two teeth. Uh, regarding the nose and orbital, do you need surgery to correct those? No, I, as of right now, no. Um, once all the swelling goes down and, and things kind of settle where they settle, we'll see how my vision is. Uh, but as of right now, no, I got to check up on the 28th uh, and we'll just go from there. And uh, regarding the teeth, what are you going to do about that? Uh, I have a dentist appointment tomorrow. And then uh, my cosmetic dentist is in Denver. So, uh, they're going to do what they can do to, to kind of hold me over until I can get to Denver and, and just go from there. You know, I'll probably, um, the tooth that the one in the front that's completely broken off, it broke off at the gum line. So the actual tooth is still in there. It's just broken off completely. So they'll probably have to pull it and I'll have to get an implant or something. But, uh, <laughs> you know, me, I got, I got some trips planned. Uh, so that, that's going to have to wait. I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to go toothless for a little bit. And to be clear, these were your real teeth, right? Not veneers. Yeah. Yeah. They're my real teeth. Uh, the way veneers kind of work, I have lost a veneer in the past, uh, on the bottom before, but my bite was kind of off. So 
I was biting down and it just ripped the veneer off, but they're actually permanently bonded to your permanent teeth. Uh, there's a whole process that goes through doing all that, but um, they grind down your normal, your normal teeth, like your actual teeth. And then there's this chemical and lighting pr- procedure that uh, they permanently bond, like they're, it's one tooth now. So uh, it's just, he, I just caught an elbow, like right in, right in my teeth and, uh, and it just broke them off. Does it hurt to speak? Cause it does feel like you're, you're having a hard time like enunciating. Yeah. It's, well, it's weird because like little things like swallowing and, and some of the words that you say, you press your tongue to the front of your teeth, to like the back of your front teeth. So it is messing with my, my speech a little bit. Okay. Um, so before we, we get to the end, which I, I know you want to address and a lot of people want to hear you address, I actually want to go to the beginning because, you know, we spoke around a month or so ago about what had happened at your home. And, um, you know, the, that is an incredibly stressful situation on not just you and your family, but here you are trying to prepare for a fight in the midst of all this. And there's all kinds of media attention surrounding it and whatnot. Now that it's all over, going into the fight, where were you at mentally? Did you feel like you had done a good job of compartmentalizing that and you were 100% focused on the fight or looking back, was it kind of on your mind even though you had been removed you know, a month or so from that, that tragedy and that event? No, I, I think I did a good job kind of pushing that to the back and, and you know, I, like, I just try to look at it like a normal job. Like normal people have to go to work kind of no matter what goes on in their life, you know? Um, and that's kind of how I looked at it. Uh, I didn't, I didn't really have any of that going on in my head at all or, or really thinking about it too much. Uh, I did have, a, like, I felt physically really, really good, but I did have one of the most eventful and distracting and tough training camps I've ever been through. But I feel like I was able to push through a lot of those things and, and I felt good going into the fight. I really did. Okay. So the fight starts, you're there, empty arena, and it looks like you're doing well in the first round. How did you feel early on in the fight? Everything was going perfect. Uh, that's that's kind of how I had seen it going in my head. Um, he didn't show me anything that I wasn't expecting. You know, I, uh, everything kind of went how I thought it was going to go the first two rounds. So did you feel like you won those first two rounds? Yeah. Yeah, I think the first was – I was definitely busier. You know, I landed the – I'm not even sure if he hit me in the face in the first round. Um, the second round – uh, he he started to attack my legs a little bit more. So, you know, I was having to be a little bit more mindful of the leg kicks. Uh, he pushed forward more in the second round. So it definitely, I had to change my approach a little bit. In the first round, he was more willing to to let me escape off the cage when he would push, when he would push forward. In the second round, he cut me off a little bit better than he did in the first. Uh, but I still think I won the second round. From what you recall, and by the way, have you rewatched the fight? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, in its entirety? Mm-hmm. So from what you saw and what you recall, when did you feel like things started to turn a little more in his favor? Um, he hit me with an uppercut in the third. And that's kind of where things started going downhill for me. Um, you know, it's this is the second time I've had my orbital broken. And I, it's so weird. Like some guys get their orbital bones broken and, and they don't have too many problems with them. Uh, but both times I've had mine broken, it completely shuts down my vision. Uh, and I, and I don't know why. I don't know what. And maybe that's just the type of break that it is. And, and you know, they're all different. There's different places you can get them. Uh, but that was the shot that started messing with my vision. It was just, I knew right then and there this was going to be really tough to come back from because I couldn't, I couldn't quite track everything coming from from my right side. So I could see it at the beginning, uh, but I would lose it halfway. And you know, like 
that's just how, I mean, that's just the fight game. You know, one shot can change the entire game. Uh, once he hit me with the uppercut, I backed up towards the fence and was kind of trying to figure out, like, trying to regroup myself. Uh, and I kind of just threw some wild knee, chin up in the air. And, you know, he hit me with that, that big left hook that dropped me. So it was the right eye that was giving you problems. You could see out of your left, but the right you could hardly see anything out of. Yeah, yeah, dude, it was that was bad. Wow, are you like are you freaking out? I mean, you've been there before, you know, so many times. But like, you're fighting a grown man who's very dangerous, who's looked good as of late, and you can't see anything out of your right eye. That has to be terrifying. Well, and it wasn't completely blind. It was just it was very it was really really hazy, and that's why I kept wiping it. It, it was almost like I had something in it, like I had blood in my eye or. or or something like it was super foggy and I just, I, I couldn't track anything. If he threw a straight jab, it was fine. Mm. But Glover doesn't really throw super straight punches all the time. Even his jabs have a little bit of an arc to him. So I could see it at the beginning and I'd lose it halfway and I wouldn't see it again. So it was crashing in my face. Um, so then I was trying to figure out like what was going to work best. Like, is it better to clinch and, and kind of fight from there? But then every time he hit me, you know, I thought my eyeball was going to pop out of my head. So I was like, well, this isn't going to work. Right. So then I try to be at distance and then it was straight panic mode uh, at distance because I, I couldn't see the shots coming from far away. So I was just, I was just trying to figure it out. You know, I'm just, Oh, that's what I, that's how I, that's how I do it, man. I'm, I'm just always trying to figure out, figure it out. You know, I'm just trying to figure it out. So it looked like it got really dicey uh, for you towards the end of the third round. And I was wondering because just looking at you walking over to the corner and in the corner in between the third and fourth, I was wondering what your corner was going to do. Um, if there was going to be any sort of conversation about, you know, maybe stopping the fight, but that never happened. Do you remember the state that you were in? Like how much, you know, trouble you were in physically at that point, how much you were hurting going into the fourth? Was that when I said the thing about my teeth? Um, hmm. I actually, yeah, I do believe so. I mean, I look like you were sort of out of sorts. I don't remember if that was between the fourth and the fifth or the third and the fourth, but it, it, was, it was, I think it was the third and the, between the third and the fourth. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometime in the third, he hit me with the elbow, like, right in my mouth and I was really just trying to gather myself that third round like I don't remember taking any real big shots that 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 really had me worried you know he has really heavy hips and so he did a good job of keeping me down but I I definitely took a handful of like real big shots but I don't think I took them consecutively you know it was I would take a big one uh and then I'd have to regroup and try to figure it out and get safe and and whatever but uh I remember going back and trying – and I don't know who said it. I thought it was Mark Montoya. He says it wasn't him. But someone said, you got to keep your mouthpiece in. And I've never been a guy to lose his mouthpiece. I don't think I've ever had a mouthpiece come out and fight. But it was rolling around my mouth because the tooth was was loose inside my inside of my mouthpiece. And so I was just responding to what they were saying. Like I, everyone's looking at it like I was looking for a way out or I was saying that so that they would stop the fight. I was responding to someone saying, you got to keep your mouthpiece in. And I was saying, I, like, my goddamn teeth are falling out. So by me saying that, I was – when James Cross was in that his last fight, he came back to the corner, and no one said anything about it. James sat down, like I think going into the third round, and said, you know, this guy's kicking my fucking ass. But, like, that's just an in-the-moment realness real quick. It's not like you're looking for a way out. You're not trying to quit. You're just being real for a second. And that's kind of what I was doing, like – they were just talking about my mouthpiece. Like, you got to keep it in your mouth because you never want to catch a, a big shot with your mouth open and not biting down on your mouthpiece. It's the easiest way to get knocked out. So I was responding by saying, like, my teeth are loose. Mouth, my mouthpiece is a custom-fitted guard. So once you lose one of those teeth, 
your mouthpiece no longer fits. So that was what I was, that's the point I was making. I guess I should have, I could have done it better, but I was kind of busy at the moment. Right. So you weren't asking for a way out. You were just telling them. Yeah. No, I wasn't looking for a way out. They know that. They know the rules. Okay. So, so then let's, let's cut right to the chase. What do you make of all the criticism that your corner has received? Not the referee. We'll get to the referee, Jason Herzog in a second, but the, the corner has received a lot of criticism from, uh, media, from analysts, from myself. I will be honest as well. Um, saying that they should have looked out for you better and stopped the fight sooner. What do you make of that criticism? The, they, I feel bad because they're in a tough spot. I don't know if they, if they wanted to stop it or if they thought about it, but I take that option away from them before we have ever gotten to that. Before any of this ever happened, before we ever, anything, before any of this shit. I took that option away a long time ago. If you want to sit in my quarter, that's my rule. You don't stop the fight. Don't put your, like, leave it in my hands. Don't take it out of my hands. So, like, I've told them before, if you stop the fight or you throw the towel in, you can go ahead and walk back to the, back to the locker room by yourself because I'll never stand by you again. I don't, I don't need liabilities in my corner. I, I, the way that I fight, I end up in shitty spots sometimes. And that's just how it goes. And I, and most of the time I've been able to come back and, and win. And sometimes you can't, you know, sometimes you just, you run out of time and, and sometimes it's just too high of a hill to climb. But uh, I, I don't need those liabilities. I don't need to be getting to bad spots, working my ass off to try to get to a better position and and constantly having the back of my head worried that my corner is going to step in and not give me the opportunity. So whether they did or they didn't, it didn't matter. Like that's the rule that like, we don't, we don't stop fights. That's, that's it. And that there's, there's a lot of other people that that's on and that's the referee and the doctor. And th- there's a reason those people have a job. Like that's their job. If he thought that it would need to be stopped, then that's on him. The doctor thinks that I can't continue. Then that's on him. That's his, that's his job. That's what he went to school for. That's what he's being paid for. Uh, I'm paying them to help me win fights. I don't need them constantly in the back of their head, worried about how much damage I'm taking. That's not their job. I need them. They're paid to help me win fights and that's it. So, so you've had explicit conversations with your cornerman saying, if you think about stopping this, if you do stop a fight that I'm involved in, we are never working together again. Yes. And why is that? Like why that mindset? Because you could also make the case. I mean, look at one of the most famous, biggest boxing matches of the last decade. Wilder Fury was stopped by a cornerman. Why do you feel like that is a bad thing? I, I, I just always want the opportunity and I, and I, and I want it to be on me. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm a self-made guy. Like I, I don't, I don't need anybody to step in and protect me. I made it this far in my life. I've gone through all the adversity, not just in the sport, just in life in general. I, I don't need saved. You know, I, I don't, I don't, I, and I felt like in this fight, it still wasn't like, I don't get all the uproar. Like, I don't think it was that bad. I really don't. So, but in general, as a whole, I just want it on me. And, and I, and I've always looked at the doctors and the refs. That's their job. If, if, if there's two people already being paid, to worry about my safety like why do i need four other people to do that and that's how i look at it so when you see other fighters um you know well, and, it's, and, it's, and it's not a money thing either most of my money's guaranteed okay like I, i'm no i don't have the 50 50 split like most people like my win bonuses aren't that big mm. like there's there's i got my show money and then there's there's other stuff that comes in like in my contract but like as far as a win bonus i can give a shit less about the win bonus like it doesn't matter to me like my money's it's been guaranteed for a long time. So it's it's not like 
they're afraid of taking away half my money because I got most of it anyways. Is there something to be said for the notion that like when you step in there, the onus is now on them and the referee, they're the biased party. The referee's the unbiased party. And they're looking out for you because they want you to live the fight another day. They want you to be healthy. They want, you know, that sometimes you can't think clearly in those moments. So you give them the power as, as other fighters have done. Is there something like you feel like that is a rational, you know, thought process, or is that something that you can never subscribe to? No, listen, I, I understand why people do do it. I get it. Uh, and I, and I would never knock anyone for throwing in the towel. You know, like I've seen fights where I'm like, man, they should probably stop that fight. You know, like I, it's just not for me. It's not that I'm, I'm against it for other people. I think that it needs to be done in MMA more often. It absolutely does. Cause I think we see some really bad situations sometimes. Uh, I just don't want it for me. You know, it's kind of like that parent thing. Like it's, it's real easy as a parent to tell your kids, like, don't do this, don't do that. But like, sometimes you do do it yourself. So like, I know it's best. I just don't want to be a part of it in my, in my own team. It's rare in situations like this where it seems like the fans, the media and the, 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 the fighter analysts, right. Are all in agreement on something. It seemed like most people felt like the fight should have been stopped sooner by your corner. What did you make of what was being said by the media, the fans and your fellow fighters? Like I got to really tiptoe around this because there's a couple different angles here. Like, I don't want the fans to think that I'm unappreciative of them caring. And I think that that's the vibe that a lot of them have gotten that, that I'm upset that they care. I'm not at all. Uh, also, I have colleagues that I work with on the ESPN side, guys that I really, really respect uh, that I think sometimes forget what their other job is. Uh, and, and I mean that with absolute respect. I, I, I definitely don't want this to go like, I don't want this to be an Anthony Smith versus DC or Felder or Anik, or I, I don't want it to go like that. Um, cause I, I love those guys. I appreciate the hell out of them. Um, and I do care that they care. Like I, I appreciate it. I do think sometimes, uh, especially during this whole pandemic, I think people are a little soft. I think they're a little soft. Um, even watching it back. I felt even more like it wasn't that bad watching it back. Like I went through it and I was the person it was happening to and didn't feel like it was as bad as people were making it seem. And then I watched it and I still feel the same way. Um, as far as the fans, I, I get it from the fans and the media. I understand because 99.9% of those people have never done it. They, have, they haven't done the work to get to, to get there. They don't know. They can't even fathom us going into a fight in general. Like that escapes most people, like what it takes to actually step in there and do it. So I, I wouldn't expect them to understand when things kind of hit the fan. So I, I, I guess I don't really have a lot to say about the fan part of it because I know that they don't understand the media. I think that there's not a lot of news going on right now. And I think that it's, that was a, an easy home run. Uh, and it's easy to, it's easy to attack people when, when things don't go your way. Um, and sometimes I think there's media members in our sport that thinks that their opinion is the only one that matters. Uh, and if things aren't that way, then it's, it's outrage and anger. And, and, and again, there's not a lot of news right now. So like, this is a big story because the fans were kind of being sissies about it. So, and as far as my colleagues, you know, I, I do find it odd that like guys that are as tough as Michael Bisbing, Daniel Cormier and Paul Felder are, are upset about like me being in a tough fight. 
you know, like, and that's how it feels like to me. Like I was in a tough fight, things kind of, you know, shit hit the fan and it didn't go my way. But how many rounds has Paul Felder fought with a broken arm? You know, like you can fight with a broken arm, but my teeth being gone is too much. Like, come on, dude, what are we doing here? Like Michael Bisbing in the biggest fight of his life with Anderson Silva, when he got knocked out at the very end of the round for the beginning of the next round was a dead body and was able to fight back, was given the opportunity. That's all I wanted was the opportunity. And, and if it didn't go my way, then that's on me. But, and then he goes in and wins the biggest fight of his life. And it, and it is a, a, a legend because of it and because of his toughness and the tough fights that he's been in. I don't, I don't, I guess I don't get it. Like, and, and maybe some of it is they're just completely being media members on that side of it. And, and that's how they look at it. But like, I feel a little bit betrayed. You know, like, I, I feel like I'm very honorable when it comes to talking about other fighters and, and, and other guys. And, and, and if I ever had, like, a really big issue with something, I feel like instead of attacking them uh, online, I would I would call them and say, hey, man, like, you know, maybe we messed this one up or maybe we missed something here or, like, how could we do this better? Um, like, there used to be a brotherhood, you know, and, and maybe I'm just – you know, I guess I'm the last of a dying breed of kind of the old guard and the old way of doing things. Um, but I would, I would just never blast them like that. You know, like I, I'm just in there fighting for my family and, and trying to accomplish my goals. And then here I am, you know, I've looked up to DC as long as he's been on top, you know, like looked up to Felder and I told Felder this before I was even in the UFC when he was commenting for the CFFC that I looked up to Felder and the way that he fought and, and, and I have nothing but respect for Anik. He's done nothing but help me uh, try to flourish and grow uh, on the media side of it and on TV and, and, and helped me a lot. Uh, I just wish that that was more of a conversation we had in private. Is it possible, though, that they said these things because they do like you and respect you and feel so so strongly about you that they're doing the be, be, out of love, right? Out of concern, not oh, for sure. to make you feel bad. For sure. For sure. I, and, and that's what I mean. Like, I don't want them to think that I'm like coming at them. I don't want this to be like a back and forth thing. Like I, I absolutely know it's because they care. I just, the fans and the media, you know, MMA, whatever.com, it starts with DC and then like they control the narrative. So what DC says during the fight and what Annex says during the fight, that, that ends up being the way that the masses think. And DC was saying, listen, guys, we got to, we, you got to look at this differently. Maybe you feel like this, but maybe his corner's seeing something different. Like if there's the other side of the conversation, then some of those people are going to be looking at the other side, but if they're only looking at the way that he's looking at it, I mean, that's the whole point of him being there, right? Is, is to be the eyes and, and for people to see things that they wouldn't typically see. So like the entire world that watched it, it, it like they followed that narrative. So like, that's the fans like they don't know what they don't know. So like they're just going with what DC said. They're going with how Anik looked at it. And again, I don't. I, I appreciate people caring. I really do. I just think that it's it's been made such a big deal. And it's not that big of a deal. If you were working that night as an analyst, whether it's at the desk or in the booth, how would you have reacted to that? If it was Fighter X in there, same exact fight, same exact you know flow, finish, all that stuff. How would you have? dissected it I, i've done it before uh and it's for the other fight that people give mark montoya crap about was the thomas gifford i was on the desk for the gifford fight and i said the exact same thing that i'm saying now i didn't even 
address the fact that Mark did or didn't stop the fight. I, I think that's an opinion thing. It, it just depends on who you are and, and where you sit in the world and how you view things. I said on the desk, on ESPN, that uh, that's on the ref and the doctor. And, and so, I mean, like, it's not like this is just something I'm making up now. Like, I've said this months and months and months ago that I don't care what you feel about it. The corner should have stopped the fight. I don't think it's his job. Uh, and I said it then, and that's what I would have said in my own fight. Like, I just I, – I think that there's two people that are hired to do that, and, and I think that's who it needs to be on. And, if, and if you want change – you want things to change. I think that those people are the ones that need to change things. So I'm assuming you you've talked to your corner since then, right? Um, how do they feel about it? They haven't said all that much about it. How do they feel about the decision to not stop the fight and also the criticism that they've received? I mean, they're kind of sissies too. You know, it's the same issue I have with Jason Herzog, you know, like now that, you know, like I feel bad for James because now James is, is second guessing himself. And it like, you know, it's kind of the same. Like, stop being a sissy, dude. Like, like, I guess I don't know if people don't know this. So we might be making breaking news here. Social media is not, like, the real world. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know if everybody knows that. But who gives a shit what people say on Twitter? Like, who cares? That's their job is to be people on Twitter. Like, there's that's who they are. Uh, I just don't – I don't understand, like, I've never let social media or, like, what people say – affect the decision like if i think i made a bad decision i'll go back and i'll look at it uh evaluate it and if i think i need to change it then then i do that but i'm not going to do that because other people think that i need to uh and that's my issue with jason herzog jason herzog is a phenomenal ref he's really good he's he's very very good uh and he did his job and he did it correctly so now that you know there's a little bit of heat because people are in their feelings and and they can't handle it he, he wants to go back and apologize. Like, what are you apologizing for? Like, and that's what I meant when I said that's a coward move. Like, don't, because social media, because Twitter is mean, you're going to go back and have to, and, and think that you have to make a different decision to appease the masses. That's bullshit. Like, I, I make it a point before every fight uh, in our fighter meeting to know exactly what their commands are and, and, and what he expects out of each one. And I did the same exact thing before the Glover fight. And so I know what to expect when I'm going in there. I know what the ref is going to do. Uh, and I responded accordingly per his commands right before the fight. So what are you apologizing for? Because you can't handle the heat on Twitter? Get out of here with that. It's the same thing with my coaches. Like, my, that's just the way I fight. Like, things are going to get a little heat. Like, you know what I mean? Like, there's a little bit of heat. Like, if you can't handle it, maybe you're in the wrong business. And that's, that was, that's my message to them. And I reiterated the fact that nothing changes. So if this is too hot, then then get out of the kitchen because this is how I this is how this is how I run my career. And, and like I need you guys to help me win. Period. All right, let's take a quick pause from this conversation with Anthony Smith, which I hope you are enjoying, to tell you guys about a company that could really use a partner like Anthony Smith, Modelo. Why Modelo? because Modelo is brewed for those with a fighting spirit. That's why they're the official beer of the UFC, because they support those who never give up, even when the odds are against them, much like Anthony Smith. To be a great fighter, as you know, it doesn't matter where you come from, it matters what you're made of. The same can be said for great beers. Modelo has been the gold standard since 1925. Modelo is a crisp, Pilsner-style lager that set the standard for authentic Mexican beer. Modelo uses premium hops to give the golden lager its crisp taste. So, 
The next time you're tuning into a big UFC fight, make sure you've got the beer that is always in your corner, Modelo. Modelo Especial. Brewed for those with a fighting spirit. Drink responsibly. Beer imported at Crown Imports, Chicago, Illinois. You notice how I say the end very quickly, like they do in the commercials? I'm trying my best. I hope you appreciate that. All right. Here's the rest of my conversation with Anthony Smith. So when Jason Herzog, the referee who has a great reputation, came out with that statement on Friday saying no one is to blame except for me, what was your reaction when you read that? You're being like, you're being a coward. Were you surprised that he did that? Yeah. I don't need you to take the heat off of me. I don't, I don't need your help. You know, like I, I, I made the decision with my coaches a long time ago that this is how this was going to go if I ended up in this spot. And I was okay with that. And then I made the decision to have that conversation with Jason Herzog to make sure that I knew what he was going to want from me if, if I ended up in a bad spot or if Glover ended up in a bad spot. Because there's two sides to that. Mm-hmm. If I'm going to be listening to the commands, and I need to know how close I am to finishing Glover or not. So that if I, I don't want to, I don't want to empty my gas tank and, and not even be close to a finish. So I was very clear with him before the fight. And he'll tell you that I, I'm probably the only guy that does that. I'm very, very, I'm just, I'm very clear on, on what it's going to sound like when you're about to stop a fight. I need to know that. Hmm. So I did everything he asked me to do. Everything. If, if he was going to stop the fight, if, and I don't think that he needed to at that moment, but if he was going to stop it, it, the only time he could have done that was right when Glover dropped me. Right when he dropped me, I was face down for a second and I took two shots on the Glover's way down. Like that was the only time that like I could look at it and say that was probably a moment he could have stepped in and probably not a lot of people have said anything. Then other than that, there wasn't another moment for him to stop the fight. It never happened. I never took consecutive huge blows. Do you recall handing him your teeth and were you afraid when you did that that he would stop the fight? Yeah, I wish I wouldn't have done that because it's the aesthetics of it that just look like shit, you know? Right. It's, I do. Well, I looked down. Glover hit me with like just a, a little pop shot and my mouthpiece kind of jiggled down in the bottom of my teeth. Uh, and I just looked down and my teeth were right there. And for whatever reason, I don't know if I thought I was going to put it back in or, or what, but I was just like, Oh, there's my tooth. And, you know, I just grabbed it and then I had it in my hand and I didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> so I just handed it to him. But again, I wish I would, I wish I wouldn't have said anything about my teeth because that was when the media started picking up on, oh, he's knocking his teeth out. Like, I guess I missed the rule that said you needed all your teeth to fight. Like, in the grand scheme of things, I've been in way worse situations than just a couple missing teeth. You know, I've been one-handed more than a couple times. And so it's, it's really not that big of a deal. Uh, and I wish I wouldn't have handed it to him because it just, it just looked bad. The aesthetics of it are, is just not good. Did Jason Herzog speak to you after the fight? No, no. Have you talked to him since? Huh? Hmm. No, I, I don't think there's a reason to. I think I, I was just curious if he apologized to you. If he was apologizing to the world, I wouldn't for, have accepted it. Right. I wouldn't have because I don't think I, I don't I don't need an apology. Me and him, like his hands are clean on this one. We're good. I, and what, again, like I want to reiterate again. I think he's a phenomenal rep, and I would love to have him in there with me again hmm. because I, it, he's very clear. He stays out of the way. He's, he's quiet. Like Keith Peterson is another guy that I really enjoy too because they don't insert themselves. Big Dan is good. Like they stay back. They let you fight. Sometimes you even forget that there's a ref in there. I, and I like that. And, I, and he's very clear with his instructions. He only speaks when he needs to. And like he's, he's great, man. He's really, really good. 
So I was just about to ask you, do you, you know, in the future, would you ask to not have Herzog ref one of your fights? You just answer that question. Um, so we know where you stand there. What about the relationship between you and your cornerman, your, your coach, Mark Montoya has been with you for quite some time. Um, has this affected your relationship? Will you change your corner moving forward? No, no. And I think that there is some things we could, that we're going to have to talk about and address. Uh, and a lot of it is going to be a lot of toughen up and, and deal with it kind of conversations. Like, I know that Mark is very, very upset at, at, at some of the things that are happening on, online. Uh, I know James is upset. I know, you know, like everyone's disappointed. Uh, About the criticism, you mean? Yeah. For, the yeah they're, they're just, and it's not their fault. Like, what were they supposed to do? Like, really? Stop the fight and then I fire them all? And they knew that. Yeah. I reiterated it yesterday. Nothing oh. changes. You spoke to them about this? Nothing changes. Like, and you get, you can ask them about it. Like nothing changes. Like, obviously we got to get better. We got some things I got to fix, technical stuff. uh, Just the way that we train some of the the approaches and stuff. That's, that's an ever changing thing. We're always going to change stuff like that. Win or lose. Uh, But in in this situation, I, again, I don't need them. I had to make sure like this has, this part of it doesn't change. Like I don't need to worry that you guys can't handle it. So I want to float something your way. And, and I appreciate the relationship that we have because I feel like I could be honest with you mm-hmm. and you won't hold it against me type of thing. Because, you know, I said to you last year, I think you should have taken the win against John Jones, right? And and you, <laughs> in right. so many words, you know, called me a sissy as well for doing that. And mm-hmm. I respect it. I didn't take it personal, but I feel like you should have taken it. He did something illegal. It wasn't your fault. It was a big fight. You should be the champion in that moment. And so you can make a strong case and I can make that case because I feel like you should have won that fight because of the illegal knee that your corner should have advised you in that moment because you were probably a little bit out of it at that point because you were hit with an illegal knee. Hey man, take the belt, live to fight another day as a champion. We'll make a lot of money. This is good for your career, warrior spirit, all that stuff that doesn't put food on your family's table in five years. Right. But being a light heavyweight champion does. And so you can make a case that the corner failed you that night a year ago and they failed you last Wednesday. Right. In my well, actually, actually, in the John fight, they wanted me to not continue. Really? Not because not because they wanted me to steal the belt or anything. They knew I was hurt. Yeah. And they knew that I was compromised and that I wasn't going to be going back as strong as I was. And it wasn't like you need to sit down. You can't. You can't continue. It was very much a like, are you okay? Like, don't keep going if you're not okay. Right. Uh, it, it was a lot of questions. Like, are you sure you're okay? You know, and, and, but they won't let you talk to your corner. Hmm. So it's a lot of yelling from where they're sitting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't think that, that I don't think they would have, I, I think that they wanted me to be a hundred percent and be not compromised illegally uh, moving forward. I just, again, I just, I didn't give them the option. You and know, I'm just, not trying to suggest being a weasel per se, but <laughs> that's a byproduct of the illegal knee, right? Like, Hey, my, I'm here to protect my guy. I've been put in this, Bought to protect my guy. He pays me. I need to look out for his best interest so that he's not hurting in 10 years. And so, hey, if a byproduct of saying we can't continue is winning the belt and winning all this money, then great. That's a nice thing. But that should be, in my opinion, the mindset for the main event at UFC 240, whatever, or the first fight of the night at UFC 240, whatever. And so I was just wondering, it, it just sounds to me to basically say this in a roundabout way. In some cases, it seems like the corner is in charge once the fight starts. But when it's Anthony Smith in his fight, you have explicitly, and I don't think a lot of people know this, and I think it's important to know, you have told the coaches and your cornermen, 
You are in charge. Anthony Smith is in charge. Don't you dare stop this fight for good reasons or bad reasons to win the belt, to take money. I am the one who wants to go out of my shield, essentially is what you've told them. Is that accurate? Yeah. And I don't yeah. think a lot of fighters yeah. say that. Yeah, 100. Well, and that's kind of what I'm finding out. Like, I yeah. thought everyone <laughs> you know, I thought that was normal. Uh, I thought that was kind of like just a normal thing. Um, and I guess it's not. And, and again, I, maybe, maybe it was normal with, you know, the kind of the older guard of guys. Uh, I mean, even my old buddy Chael yeah. was furious. Fur- I haven't heard him that mad in quite some time, and he was me furious. either. And then, so then I had to, you know, I shot him a text that night, like, "Come on, Chael, calm down, <laughs> chill out." And I, and I know, and again, it comes from uh, it comes from a place of, of caring. So I, I do. I, I want to keep saying that, like, I appreciate it. I really do. Like, I, I really feel loved. Uh, I just don't think it's that serious. I, mm-hmm. I don't. I, I don't feel like this is like a fight where you're watching someone get beat to death. I, I just, I didn't, I didn't feel like that. Uh, would you, if you have an up and coming fighter, if I'm a guy who's about to start my career and I, and I ask you for advice, Hey, should I employ the same thing with my cornerman? Like, is that smart? Do you, do you, are you able to say, Hey, this is my rule, but it's maybe not the smartest way to go. I'm not even fighting? saying that I wouldn't stop the fight. Interesting. Wow. So someone like, might I would that's definitely do it for somebody else. Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What? I thought you don't believe in it. For me. Right. For me. Then why I, would you do it for someone else? So, so my best friend, his name's Ryan Thompson, mm-hmm. uh, fought on the, on the regional scene. You know, he, he never made it to any huge shows or anything. But um, in his last fight, he shot a takedown. The guy stuffed his takedown, uh, circled around behind him, and kind of hit him with one of those uppercuts behind his arm like uh, uh, Dan Henderson hit Bador with. Mm-hmm. It was one of those. And, and knocked him out. And I was immediately stopping the fight. Like I just didn't have like the ref just beaten to it. Mm-hmm. But like I was ready to throw the towel in because I just can't watch it. Why would you do that for someone else? But you wouldn't want someone to do that for you. Because I know, I know who I am and I know what I'm willing to lose. And I know how far I can push. Like I know how deep I can dig if I really need to. Uh, and again, I've done it before and, and I've just, I, I know everything about myself. I know that sounds stupid, but I know, I know what I can handle. Like I know how much I can take. I, I, I and I don't know that about other people. So how like, does your wife feel about this mentality? Um, she's on board because that's the supportive thing to do. Right. She doesn't necessarily enjoy it, uh, but she's going to support me in anything, you know? Right. And I think I just, I think it's a bigger issue that that sometimes the cornermen have to, you know, like if people want things to change, I, I don't think it's fair that you put that on the cornermen that they have to be worried about protecting their fighter and trying to help them win at the same time. That kind of those two things kind of go against each other. Like I talked to John Hackleman on the phone yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, who's Glover's coach. Yeah. And like that guy stops fights way too early. Right. And he knows it and he admits it, you know, because he just cares too much. And, uh, you know, there's people that are on the on on the opposite end of that too, where some guys can't take it at all. Did and, he call you just, or you call him? Uh, he texted me and I called him. Oh wow! Text you for what? The chit chat. Okay. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah, and and Glover is as well. What about that sequence? Do you remember him apologizing to you? Yeah, I didn't know what he was apologizing for though. 
<laughs> I didn't know. I was just like, yeah, that's why, that's why my response was what it was. Like, as I didn't know what he was apologizing for. Uh, but you know, like, and, and, and maybe I got too much of that warrior spirit and maybe someday it's going to bite me in the ass. But, uh, like, I feel like if you, if your corner stops the fight, I feel like you're like the fighter gets a clean win stolen from them. Mm. Wow. It's an interesting mentality. I, I, I mean, again, you were alluding to the fact that people can't fathom doing what you guys do. I'm one of those people. That's why I have so much respect for you guys. I always thought that the, the corner is there to not only guide you and coach you, but to also protect the fighter. That's been my thought process when it comes to their job. And so I actually like it when I see a corner stop the fight because it's like, wow, these guys really care. I know it's a ballsy move. They'll probably hear from the fighter in the back because we've seen situations like Czech Congo and Pat Barry, right? Or, yeah. or uh, Pete Sell and Scott Smith, like crazy turnaround, you know, finishes. But well, And those two things are 10 years apart. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's not even like it happens that often. So right. I, I get it. Like when uh, Duke Rufus stopped Pettis and Tony Ferguson, uh-huh. wasn't it, for a broken yep. hand? Yeah. Like, I thought that was amazing. Like, I like <laughs> I thought that was amazing. Because, he know, like, you know how much balls it takes to stop a fight like that, knowing what's on the line and, and, and what kind of incredible fight those guys were in? I I admire that. I just I just don't want any part of it. That's amazing. Um, did you talk to the UFC brass afterwards, Dana White, anyone there? What did they say about the fight? Yeah, yeah, they've called me a couple times, just checking on me, you know. Which, which again, is kind of another weird thing. I'm like, why do you guys keep calling? Like, I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. Uh, you know, uh, Hunter reached out. Dana called. Uh, Maynard's checked on me. Like, and you know, and I work with a lot of the people in the back too. You know, a lot, most of the ESPN staff, the security guys, the the blue shirts. You know, so they, they've all reached out. Like, I'm re- I'm feeling really, really loved. I really am. Uh, other than the fans that are calling for my retirement, people have been pretty cool for the most part. Um, I, I feel a lot of love. I do. I, I just – I just, it makes me uncomfortable when people are worried about me, you know? I don't know why. It's just, I respect it's, that. It's, it's uncomfortable. Obviously, you have some healing up to do, but perfect world, when would you like to return? Um – Maybe like July or August. That soon? Yeah. Yeah, I do better when I keep I mean, you forget I was out for a year. I know, but broken orbital, broken nose, teeth. I mean, I broke my nose in the John Jones fight and fought Gus like six weeks later. <laughs> yeah. Uh, three months, actually, to be exact. It was March to June, right? No, it's like six weeks. Okay, fine. Fair enough. <laughs> I'm not going to argue with you about it. But okay, so you want to come back quickly? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I do. I Like, no later than September, for sure. Um, and I think there's a lot of intriguing matchups, you know, I think there's, you know, maybe it would be, maybe it'd be nice to, to step down from the guy with the face on the poster, you know, and just, and just fight a regular fight, you know, mm-hmm. and, and if it's a main event, it's a main event. I, I doubt I give it a, get one for a little while, but, um, I think that there's, there's some definite fun matchups for sure. So this hasn't affected your love of the game or anything like that? Nah. No, man, this is the game. This right. is this is the game. Like, sometimes it just doesn't go your way. Like, one shot changes the whole game. You know, like, mm-hmm. who knows what that fight looks like if I don't get my orbital broken with an uppercut. That's part of the game. He hit me with a clean shot and then dropped me right afterwards, and it's just sometimes the ball just gets rolling downhill and it's hard to stop. Uh, but I'll do what I always do. Pull myself up by my bootstraps and figure out where we went wrong. We fixed it. 
get in better shape, get faster, get stronger. And, and, and we just run out there and do it again, you know, and, and fortunately probably now there's probably a lot of people that are going to be jumping on the, the, the ticket to want to fight me now. So, you know, there's always some positive byproducts, you know, I mean, I bet I'm, I bet Corey Anderson's licking his lips right now. Mm-hmm. Or maybe you could get Luke Rockhold out of retirement. And we get yeah, I mean, <laughs> listen, we're both coming off of losses. This is a pretty fair fight right now. Um, I know that, uh, you know, you've been kind of sitting on these thoughts for a while. In conclusion, anything else that you feel like we didn't touch on that you want to get out there? No, no. I just, again, for the last time, I appreciate everyone. I really do. I, I appreciate DC. Uh, I appreciate Felder. Uh, I really, really appreciate John Anik. Uh, that guy just cares so, so damn much. Uh, I, so I, I appreciate them, the fans, everyone with the UFC has been great. Um, I just, I'm all right. And I was all right then, you know, so, you know, maybe this is a bigger issue that, that just kind of manifested itself in me. And maybe there's other fights that have gone too long and people are upset about it. Um, and, and this is just the one that kind of put them over the edge. I don't know. Um, but you know, that's it really, man. I just appreciate everyone. Jason Herzog, don't change anything. You're a hell of a ref. Uh, and keep doing your thing and uh, don't let Twitter hurt your feelings. Yeah, that's a good lesson for all of us. And by the way, one last thing, um, obviously it was big news when we talked about what happened at your home. Is life kind of going back to normal for you guys? Do you feel like you're slowly getting back to, you know, obviously that was a very traumatic thing for not only you, your wife and your kids. Do you feel like things are getting back to normal a little bit? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think the trip to Florida was really, really good for, for the kids. Uh, mm-hmm change the scenery and and the whole time we were gone they never brought it up so it was never it was never talked about it was never you know they they slept fine um this is the furthest my two oldest kids have slept away from me uh that entire week they were on the complete opposite side of the house um they weren't even like freaking out too bad about the doors like obviously i checked all the doors and made sure it was locked but um they weren't worried about it uh they came home we got home yesterday and last night's bedtime was fairly simple. There wasn't a lot of worry or they didn't bring it up. They didn't have me check the doors or anything. It was cool. So maybe just that change of scenery and giving them yeah. something different to look at helped, you know? I'm glad to hear that. Uh, it's always great to talk to you, man. You're always very candid. You're always very honest, transparent. I appreciate all of that. Sorry, it didn't go your way um, on, on Wednesday of last week, but looking forward to the comeback and appreciate you, you know, taking all the heat here and uh, answering all these questions. Thanks as always, Anthony, and speedy recovery to you as well. Thanks, Errol. You take care. Really appreciate Anthony Smith for taking some time out. I can't say that I agree with everything that he said, but it obviously shed some light on why the corner did not stop the fight. And look, if you're hired by a fighter and the fighter says to you, I will fire you if you ever throw in the towel, well, then you may not throw the towel. And we can understand why their hands may have been a little tied. It's a tough spot to put them in. I don't agree with putting them in that tough spot. I feel, and who am I to say any of this? I'm not a fighter. I know that. But I feel as an outsider that once you walk into the cage, you need to give your corner that power. You need to empower them to make those kinds of tough calls. And it's not like they're looking to do that. It's not like they want to do it, but they're looking out for you because they love you and they want to work with you and they want your career to go on for many years. And he has taken that power away from them. So that's why I don't agree with it. Also, when you hear him say that he would do it to someone else, that he would stop the fight for a friend or teammate, it leads me to believe that he understands why we were so critical. He just doesn't want it to happen to him. And so I get that. 
And I appreciate what he said about Jason Herzog. I still feel like it was an off night. But again, I don't think we need to harp on that. Jason Herzog is a very good ref, one of the top five best refs in the sport today. He didn't have a great night. He owned up to it. I think we should move on because he's had many more great nights than bad nights. And that was one bad fight. All right, it happens. Now, I know that the repercussions are very serious. The damage was serious. But Anthony's at peace with it. Then I guess we should be at peace with it as well. I do think, though, that fighters should have these serious conversations with their corners before the fight about what the rules should be. And if it was up to me, I wish that once you step foot in that cage, you give that power to the corner. And so I feel for the corner who had to hear people like myself criticize them for a week. They didn't come out and say that there was that rule in place. And so that's why I appreciate Anthony for clearing that up. Again, I don't agree with it, but I appreciate the the explanation. I appreciate him being so honest and, and candid and blunt about it, as he always is. And hopefully that sheds some light as to why the fight went on as long as it did. So thank you very much to Anthony Smith. Now, on Saturday, the UFC held their third event in eight days. And in the middle of the show, there I am watching it. And I happened to notice that Jim Ross, yes, Jim Ross himself, formerly of World Wrestling Federation slash Entertainment, and now of All Elite Wrestling, arguably one of the all-time best pro wrestling broadcasters who has done some MMA as well, he was in attendance. And I was surprised by this. I thought only essential workers and UFC staff, fighters, and even a scaled-down version of the UFC staff was allowed to be at the arena in Jacksonville. But apparently... He's got the plug, as the kids like to say. And so I reached out to him. We spoke a little bit over text, and he's got a lot going on in his life right now. And I thought it would be fun to uh, to ask him about the experience and to pick his brain about a whole host of things regarding the world of MMA and pro wrestling. He is one of the nicest, smartest people that I've ever met doing this job, and it was a real pleasure and honor to talk to him for uh, almost an hour here. So I hope that you enjoy the conversation as much as I did, and I really want to thank Jim Ross once again for taking some time out of out of his day. Here it is. My conversation with the great, the legend, the inimitable, good old JR. First off, Jim, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, Aaron. I'm so proud of what you're accomplishing. And, you know, we were kidding earlier. You know, I first met you. You were that young, full of P&V cub reporter running for a soundbite and getting this interview and that interview. So uh, you're done great. I'm proud of you. Well, that means a lot to me, especially coming from you. So thank you. And I hope that you're in good health now. Is everything okay with you? I'm good. As far as I'm knocking on the wood as we speak, I'm in uh, I'm in Jacksonville, where tonight we'll have a live AEW show at eight o'clock Eastern, seven Central, and then. But I've been here since May the fourth, and I'm staying until May 29th. Our pay per view is this Saturday, so then next week we have two days of television, and then I'll go home. I just didn't want to be on too many airplanes. Like this way, I'd, I had one airplane ride Oklahoma City to Atlanta. Tony Schiavone picked me up in Atlanta. And uh, drove me to Jacksonville because he was driving down anyway. So I'm going to be on two planes in this whole trip. So I feel good about that, at least that game plan. Yeah, and you felt comfortable with the plane and being around other people and all that stuff. Yeah, I wore my mask and yeah, you know they, they had a lot of social distancing on the plane. Not only just the the load limits are down and and but they they spread people out. I thought that was good. So yeah, I, I felt okay with it. I'm not staying in a hotel here in Jacksonville. I'm staring at a, staying at an Airbnb. Uh, unfortunately, it's on the beach, which is really terrible. Uh, <laughs> but seriously, uh, I'm not at the hotel. Every precaution that I can take, I'm taking. And yeah. when I go to the, to the arena later today, I'll be in my mask. I'll go straight to the doctor's tent because you can't go to the doctor's tent before you let the workers, uh, the, the production people, or anybody into the compound. Okay. So everybody's going to have a wristband that they pass their test. 
or you don't go through the gate. Wow. Okay. And I want to talk about that. But first, uh, the reason why we, we connected very recently was there I am watching the UFC on Saturday night in Jacksonville, empty arena, the Vistar Veteran Memorial Arena. And uh, I see a tweet coming through my, my little Twitter scroll thing there. And there you are. Jim Ross wearing a UFC mask sitting in the front. And I thought, you know, this wasn't open to uh, anyone outside of a UFC employee, essential worker, and, of course, the fighters in their camp. And there you are with the best seat in the house. So can you explain to me how you ended up at this UFC event on Saturday? Well, you know, they say it's not what you know, it's who you know. Yes. And uh, Tony Khan and, and Dana White are, are friends, uh, and they communicate about various things. I, I'm, I'm understanding uh, from time to time. So, uh, and the, and Tony lives, Tony was staying at the, uh, Hyatt hotel and that's where everybody in the USC was staying. So I think that it was just a matter of, Hey, you, you come, you want to come to the show Saturday night? Sure. I'd love to kind of bring a couple of guys. Okay. No problem. So they had chairs set up for us on the floor, but not around anybody. Mm. The only guy sitting near me was a security guy just to make sure, I guess I didn't do a run in and try to get somebody in a Kimura. And I'll be screaming double wrist lock, damn it. It's a double wrist lock. <laughs> so, uh, but it was good. And their, their game, so Tony Khan put it together. Okay. And Dana was very gracious about, uh, his time and, and, uh, you know, taking care of us. It was, it was a lot of fun. I had a good time. So who are you there with? Tony Khan and Sean Moxley. Wow. Sean Moxley, Moxley's a big time, he's our champion, you know, and, and he's a, he's a big time MMA fan. And so, and so is Tony. And so am I. Right. So it was a, one of those Saturday nights, guys night out, you know, we had a couple of beers, had dinner, went over to the fights and spent about 45 minutes or an hour with Dana before the shows, before the, the main card, maybe 45 minutes. And it was great. They treat us like kings. And I, I really appreciate it. And they talk, we talked about common issues. This coronavirus is a common issue for everybody. Right. You know, to the best of your knowledge, looking around, were you guys the only quote unquote fans in attendance? Well, as far as I know, we were, Ariel, because I don't know that some of the people that were sitting in the stands behind us, for example, yeah. and that was the only little small group. I want to say they were some family members. Okay. But they, but they had their wristbands on and they were, they had been cleared. They just didn't show up and walk in. The thing about our deal is that, you know, Dana knew that, you know, we'd already, I'd already undergone two or three tests. So, and from, for myself, and I'm actually the same. Not sure for Tony. So we were good. Uh, and so we, but we were still isolated, but I didn't see anybody else there that I would consider a, a fan. There was, right. I think there were family, a few, a few isolated family members, or that's what it appeared to me to look like. You've been to, uh, many UFC MMA events. You've called MMA events, of course, with my, my good friend and partner, Chael Sonnen back in the day. Um, <laughs> but watching one, you know, high level UFC event, big stakes, heavyweights involved in an empty arena like that. What was that experience like? Surreal. It's totally surreal. Uh, interesting things pop up that are new. For example, uh, you can hear the coaches, uh, with their instructions. I think I was kidding, uh, Tony Khan that probably somebody's going to come up with a, a code, you know, cause if you say use your right, use your right, that's pretty demonstrative. Right. Here comes the right, you know, look out. So I think that's, that's interesting, but the, 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 uh, the coaching is really intriguing. We were, you could hear the announcers talking. Wow. And I, and I really felt, felt for those guys because 
One of the great things about an, that you need in, in announcing is to gain eye contact with your partner for two of you doing a game or a fight or a wrestling match or whatever. You want eye contact so you can see if somebody's got a, they're ready to go or they got something they need to say. Uh, are you going to, are you going to bring them the ball? So you're going to give them the eye that hey, here it comes. These guys are sitting way far apart. Three of them. I want to get over and say hello to Michael Bisping, but I didn't get a chance to. Uh, but they were sitting way apart. So there's no way that uh, every now and then you see guys looking down this way mm. to see if they were had eye contact with their partner. So I really admired the job they did considering the, the geography. Right. But uh, it was a fun night. You know, it was, a, it, was, it was a good night. And the other thing about being in an empty arena, the smashing of leather on skin <laughs> is very prominent. And there's, there's like every, and I don't care who you are. If you got a pulse, you're going to go, Ooh, oh, oh, wow, whatever. You're going to react. So it was a, it was a fun night. I couldn't, the USC was totally class and, uh, they got a game plan. I mean, that was the third night of eight, right. eight days, third night, right? So they really had this Corona thing. I thought Ariel down to a science. I was wondering if you sympathize with the broadcasters as well, because you've called so many events, so many matches, so many fights and, you know, as a broadcaster, and obviously when you're calling pro wrestling, it's a little different because, you know, the, the wrestlers are, you know, in on it, so to speak. But, you know, those broadcasters, they have to critique what the fighters are doing. And if they find out, which they did on night one, that the broadcasters can hear what they're saying, and some of them, to their credit, use the advice of a Daniel yeah. Cormier and change their game plan, that's got to be a little tough as a broadcaster, right? Now you have to, you maybe like start to think twice about what you're saying. It may give you pause. Right. But you really got to steer the course and, and do your job. And so if you have a bona fide critiques and all the DC always has bona fide critiques, he's a, he's a bright, bright guy and a guy I consider a friend. And of course, Chale, you know, Chale never, never heard a sentence he didn't want to utter. <laughs> you know, he, he's, uh, he's amazing. But yeah, I think that those guys can, they understand now they have a little different role. What they say is not only good for the viewer, hopefully, mm. but it's going to be heard by the camp the fighters, the coaches, and the, more specifically, the fighters. So it's a, it's a little bit different onus on you, but you still got to steer the course. So I kind of think that's pretty cool. Hey, if, Dan, if DC gave some advice and the guy would say, he's right. We need to do this. Right. I think that's a, it's just, it's another interesting element of the empty arena concept. If you were the UFC, would you move them away from cage side? Mm, I don't think so. No, I, I noticed on uh, Raw on Monday night, they put their announcers now where we are. We're, we broadcast like tonight at from Daly's Place in Jacksonville, close set, mm-hmm. and uh, it's an amphitheater. So the announcers are up on the stage, and the ring is down in the pit, so to speak, on the floor. Okay. So we're way away from the action. And in, in the beginning, I didn't like it because I was stubborn and old school. I want to be at ringside. I want to feel the sweat. You know, I want to, I want to see or I want to hear, see, feel, and I can translate that a little bit better. But that wasn't what the hand was dealt. And so we moved away from it. And now it's the smartest thing we've done because the, the ringside is clean. We're not subjected to all that sweat and what have you. So, uh, I, I, uh, but I wouldn't, I'd leave them there. You got to feel, uh, Arrow. You got to feel. You got to hear. Uh, and it's a very audible business. And some of those shots, man. Well, those, uh, well, the four ounce gloves. Yes, sir. Four ounce gloves and epidermis. Guess who wins? <laughs> four ounce gloves every single darn time. <laughs> 
I'm fascinated by this, and and uh, I'm really curious to get your take on it. I don't feel like the UFC product has suffered one iota as a result of having no fans in attendance. The things you just mentioned, hearing the punches, the kicks, the corners, the commentators, they've really got it down to a science where they they darken the crowd, right? So the seats don't notice that they're empty. And it just has a raw feeling. It's fun. I really don't feel like we've lost anything as a viewer or fan by watching these fights. However, and I'm curious to to hear what you have to say about it, in, in pro wrestling, I do feel like the product suffers without having the fans in attendance. Why do you feel like MMA, you could almost make a case that it actually is more interesting without the fans, yet in pro wrestling, it seems like it's less interesting? Well, that's a great question. I don't know if it's just precedent. You know, pro wrestling has been around a lot longer than organized MMA. since you know, uh, which I'm not trying to start a debate, but nonetheless, uh, I don't know. It's a, that's a great question. I don't know if it's just the presentation or it's the theatrics. Does it translate without an audience? Because it's hard to tell jokes and give punchlines if nobody's there to laugh. Mm. So sometimes it's very difficult in a theatrical presentation to translate that without audience reaction. That's why we put guys on our roster that have all been cleared from the corona as far as testing. That's why they're gonna, they'll be at ringside both tonight and Saturday night when we're on pay-per-view. It gives a little bit of ambiance, a little something, something. I, I was tender, like I said, I was watching a little bit of Raw on Monday night. One of the few people that watched it, but nonetheless, uh, I, I thought that the, the arena looks so sterile. Hmm. I don't know why they don't have people. They have people that they tested. There's people that have cleared the test that are in the building that could be there. And maybe it's only the ego side of not wanting to copy AEW. Could never do that for goodness sakes. You know, uh, but now you see what the announcer, their announcers are on Raw, and I think that's a smart move, but it does take a little bit of adjusting. And and for you, other than the placement, do you feel like you have to do more, speak louder, speak more? I don't know, anything different as far as your approach to calling it in an empty arena? The only thing I could point out, Ariel, is that I ride my levels a little. I, I'm a, I ride my volume on my, on my headset a little heavier. Okay. Uh, and... It gives me it, the, the audible sound. Then it gives me a little bit more sense of urgency. Okay. And uh, I also hear myself with not good diction sometimes when I get real fatigued because of the Bell's palsy. Sometimes I slur my words, which on social media always means that Jr's drunk. You know, so whatever. Uh, but I drive the levels a little higher. But I'm a monitor guy. I don't need to see what's going on in empty stands or anywhere else. I'm going to watch the monitor because that's what you're going to see as a viewer. Mm. And I need to put a narrative to that video, that video that you're seeing. I got to add my thing to it to help it, hopefully. So, uh, no, the, I'm, I'm good with this thing. The monitor's my friend and my levels are my friend and I get my own little zone and I do my thing as best I can. So, and this, and all, all and the guys certainly on this week, you know how this stuff goes. The hot, the last show on primetime free TV before a pay-per-view is normally hotter than hell. Because you want to encourage the audience, hey, that's good stuff. I enjoyed that. I'm going to watch their pay-per-view this weekend. So you know tonight's going to be hot, and I'm going to be ready. I'll ride those levels up a little bit, and we'll get after it. It'll be fun. One thing that I wonder um, if if this is creating a difference between the two products and the, the viewing experiences, in wrestling, I'm hearing a lot more speaking 
between the competitors. In MMA, you don't you hear the corner speaking, so they're kind of acting like the de facto crowd, if you will. But I'm hearing a lot of talking where I feel like sometimes the competitors, the athletes, the pro wrestlers are overcompensating for the lack of noise. And I feel like that makes it a little bit awkward. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. And I don't I don't I don't disagree with you as well. Everything should be organic and real within the confines of what you're presenting, if that makes any sense. In other words, we know that pro wrestling is a theatrical, uh, fictional-based presentation with excellent athletes who do their own stunts. They do it many, many times a year, usually they have in the past. Uh, but, man, I, I don't know. I think that uh, it's got to be real and organic. And, and, but the other thing, too, is that most of these wrestlers don't wear mouthpieces. Mm-hmm. So if they were talking uh, with a mouthpiece, it might be uh, hard to – it might not be legible, so to speak. But, yeah, I, I can see what you're saying there. Overcompensation is a is an issue at times because we got such a young roster, Ariel. That a lot of them are making their first pass mm. through a national stage, and they're still learning how to react. And that's what's beautiful about our brand is that they're young, they're enthusiastic, and you know, it, there's something to be said. You're doing it right now. You're living your dream. And man, when we can do that, when I can do that at 68, and I go call a pro wrestling match, which is what brought me to the dance. Hey, would I like to be doing some MMA? Of course, it'd be fun. I'd like to do, I'd like to do, I'd like to do Jags football. I've got a shirt. <laughs> but seriously, uh, any of those, those things are, are a blast, but you know, we're, you and I are both lucky at different stages of our career that we're doing what we love. And I hope that when you're 68, you're still doing what you love. Why not? Yeah. Also. I appreciate that very much. Um, just want to go back to your, your meeting with Dana White. That wasn't your first time meeting him, right? No. Or having like an extended conversation with him? Uh, I had one more little brief meeting with him, casual. Uh, I went to visit Mark Ratner, my old buddy. Oh, yeah. Years and years and years. I love him. I missed him in Jacksonville, but he didn't fly. He didn't come down. Mark's, I think Mark's mid seventies. Yeah. So, you know, he's too damn valuable to get. That's what Tony Khan said when I was home eight weeks. You're too valuable to the team to let, for you to get sick. I'd never forgive myself. Nothing started getting more. We had more information. We knew some things we should do and we should not do that we didn't know eight weeks ago type thing. Uh, so, but we, you know, we had a, that was not the first meeting. It was the longest meeting. Okay. Uh, we, we sat in this, this little uh, office, you know, in a locker room area and, uh, talked about a variety of things. We laughed, we told stories. We did what guys do. You know, everybody's got a Brock Lesnar story. Right. Everybody's got a, you know, whatever story. And, uh, so CM Punk story. So, and Daniel loves, he's a guy. He likes to talk football. He likes to talk, you know, he's a guy's guy. So, uh, but I was amazed how his demeanor is calm. Uh, I watched him at ringside as the fights are going on. He wasn't on the headsets. He wasn't telling the announcers what to say. He wasn't overproducing. He was observing the fights and him sitting at ringside. I got to believe it wouldn't be for me, buddy a great motivator from a fighter and my boss who controlled my whole, my whole uh, career is sitting right there with an eye, you know, arm's length, so to speak. He's a great administrator. He really is in his world. He's perfect for it in my estimation. Just curious. Uh, he has long been compared to a man that, you know, very well, Vince McMahon. Do you get those comparisons or do you think it's just a sort of lazy, easy one because they're two promoters who run, you know, combat sports organizations, if you will. Uh, now that you've had a little more time to talk with him and I know, I know you've known him from afar for a very long time. Do you get the comparisons between the two? 
When a man walks into a room, oftentimes he sucks the air out, out of it. And he doesn't because he likes it. He can and he likes it. Uh, Dana can, and I'm sure he does in some deals, but just on a casual one-on-one basis, uh, they're nothing alike. Mm. Uh, Dana's a lot more straightforward. You know, Vince is very guarded. And I think that comes from, you know, decades and generations of his family and the wrestling business. All those old promoters were guarded. The kayfabe, you can't tell anybody what's going on and all this other stuff. So Vince is more guarded. Dana's very open. As you know, you talked to him a zillion times. To me, now he might not be to you for a story you're, you're chasing. He's not ready to tell you, but he's pretty damned open, open with stuff. And that's what I found him to be. Uh, he's a good dude, man. He's the kind of guy that every, all of us fans would dig having a beer with. You know, he's that, he's a funny guy, well-rounded, loves football. So I love that. He loves MMA, obviously. And I do too. So he's a, I, it was great. Tony Khan, I told Tony when we, we were back, go back to the hotel. I said, I hope that you, I know you have a, a memory that's like the Rain Man. <laughs> Tony, don't miss nothing, man. I said, you got to spend about 45 minutes or an hour with one of the great entrepreneurs in American sports. No matter what anybody says about his, his, his demeanor or what they perceive Dana to be, look what he's had, he, Lee, he and others have built. It's a whole, it's a whole, it's a major league, man. So I said, you know, just his spirit is, is good to experience. So that's kind of what I looked at it. Tony agreed, you know, it's, we got a lot of access with him. And I think maybe being, being there on the last night after, after it was kind of everything had been done, everything was in place. So I had a great time and I can't thank those guys enough for the hospitality. By the way, who do you consider to be the greatest promoter of all time? P.T. Barnum. I had a feeling you would say P.T. Barnum. He started it all. For those that don't know who that is, why? Well, he's, he, he was the creator of the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus. And they traveled. They were the first traveling, major traveling show. And we were traveling by train with elephants and lions and tigers. Oh, my. You are uh, you're pretty damn, pretty sharp. And the, the other thing about those guys, the advanced men were brilliant. Because they would go in, and there was no TV or radio in the early part. So they used posters. And there's a little fun fact that kind of relates back to a little bit of wrestling. Their colors were always on the posters, and the old P.T. Martin posters were yellow and red. Who do you know in wrestling that was made yellow and red famous? Wow. And that was back. Wow. I didn't know that. Hulk Hogan wore yellow and red, and the color pattern, allegedly, he draws your eyes to it. There was a method behind the madness. It just wasn't happenstance yellow and red. I think P.T. Barnum was the guy because he started it all, the touring, the traveling. You're not just traveling with the egocentric performers. You're traveling with animals. And, you know, they say never work with kids or animals, and so there you are. (laughs) And and curious, uh, what is the state of your relationship with Vince McMahon these days? Uh, I think it's okay. You know, we don't talk as much, obviously, as as we used to. I remember his birthday. I remember – well, the holidays, he remembers my birthday, things like that. I'll get a text, or he will get a text. I congratulate him on WrestleMania for what they did, uh, that uh, Undertaker-AJ Styles match I thought was really, really good, and it was a, a production masterpiece. So I thank him, I uh, appreciate I uh, congratulate him on that. But, you know, it's a competitive world, you know, and, and my book came out under the black hat, and 
there's a lot of events in that book. I don't, I don't know if you had a chance to check it out, but you know, it's, it's the, it's the number one selling sports biography on Amazon. Uh, JRSBBQ.com will get you a signed copy and free shipping. Uh, but I talk about Vincent. I think people thought I was going to write a, a hatchet job. You know, the old low road deal. Poor me. If I had got my push, damn it. But McMahon cut me short. You know, come on. Look in the mirror. The, the thing about being great at what you do, if you're great enough, nothing can keep you from being successful. Now, you could say, well, what about the virus? Or about the course? natural causes but if you're great and you're and you're healthy and you're working your ass off there's nothing that can keep you from being successful i I made cream rises to the top i said that to the boys a lot you didn't do a damn thing differently this week than you did a year ago you haven't added to your game your 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 body looks the same you're you're loose you're not in great shape you know it's a looks business i'm not encouraging to go uh, take shortcuts with steroids and stuff. But bottom line is, what have you done as an entrepreneur, as a self-employed person, to make your game better? I see nothing. And sometimes that's what it is. But, of course, the promoters always get blamed. It's the same thing in MMA, USC, same stuff. I'm sure you hear it. Well, you know, Dana didn't like me. So that's what screwed me up. Dana didn't like me. So I'm, I was the best fighter in the roster. Okay, all right. If you were, guess what? You're asked to be in the main events on paper. You're just making a lot of money if you're the best. They're not going to turn money down because they don't like you. That's silly. So no resentment, right? I mean, the fact that you no. don't get to end. Hey, look, uh, Ariel, I had a, I've had a blessed career. A single child, single, uh, only child, I should say. I was single too. <laughs> uh, only child on a 160 acre little farm in eastern Oklahoma. Grew up a wrestling fanatic. Got to watch one hour a week, and uh, I live my dream. I'm living my dream. And along the way, McMahon gave me the opportunity to be an EVP in his company, to put together talent rosters that I still believe, and biasly, was the best ever. Look at the millionaires. Look at this, the famous guys, look at the Hall of Famers from my signing classes, our signing classes. Uh, I So I can't be angry at him. And then – I got there when the company went public and he was very kind to me and several others on the stock, stock options and stock grants. You know, I was a made man before, not too long after the uh, stock thing because of how generous he was. He had the vest, but that's nothing unusual in the corporate world. So I I really don't know, you know, other than some, uh, I think he liked teasing me. I think he liked ribbing me uh, because I I, I sold too good. I should have not, I should have no sold some of that stuff. But man, I, I just, uh, I can't be angry at him. Even though I don't agree with all those things philosophically, uh, on how you write wrestling. I think he's trying too hard to be Walt Disney and trying too hard to be entertaining, entertainment. To me, hard hitting physicality, i.e. MMA, is entertaining. Uh, I like to see physicality. I like to see the same, same process, the same principle in pro wrestling. He could do it. And for years it worked. So that's what we're trying to get back to with AEW. But, uh, you know, it's just, it's a process, man, because these kids, well, the 22, 23 year old kids that we have now, they've grown up watching guys. You're good if you can do a flip. You're good if you can do something over the top rope and have guys catch you. I've never figured out why this covey of men standing outside the ring are always there to catch somebody. Even though the person is jumping over the top rope may be their adversary. You're still going to break his fall for it. 
It's illogical. It's totally illogical. So this was just, he was good to me and, and, and financially, uh, to my family. It's just he and I had a little, had different philosophies at times, but he, he allowed me to take over the talent roster. I was bringing, I was hiring people he didn't know. He didn't have a clue who they were. You think he knew who Edge and Christian were? Not a clue. He knew Kurt Angle because Kurt was an Olympic gold medalist. But we missed him on Kurt the first time. The second time around, uh, I got, I got a chance to interact with him more and we hired him. And so, you know, just, you should have, you know, I wrote in my book, Under the Black Hat, about Vince's, uh, what he thought when he saw Brock Lesnar for the first time. You know, we started recruiting Brock Lesnar when he was a junior in college at Minnesota. So we weren't going to let him go. When Vince saw him, he, he had the, the damnest man crush in like 10 seconds on earth. He said, God damn, he looks like a Viking. I said, oh God, I still look like a Viking. That might not work. So, uh, we had great times together over some real tough times. And this Owen Hart thing that aired uh, last night was, uh, one of them, certainly. And, uh, so, but, but my relationship with them, I got to get past my ego, Ariel, on the creative. Did I like kissing his ass on the skit? No. Did I like Dr. Heine? No. But I got paid real well for all that stuff. And it helped me provide a good lifestyle for my family and my kids. You know, I, I put uh, one, two, two, two wives, and now two granddaughters through college. Mm. And I could do it. I helped their, I helped, I helped improve their life because of what Alvis helped improve mine. So I don't, I'm not bitter at him at all. I, and I, look, I say this all the time. Since Jan got killed in March of 17, I've kind of got this realization that I don't have room in my carry on for any negativity. And I, I totally believe that. I'm, I leave my house to come to work. I'm happy. I'm going somewhere. I got a destination. I'm going to be around people that like me, that respect me. And, uh, and then I'm going to work my butt off to make sure that that, all that like and respect is warranted. I, I appreciate the, uh, the honest answer very much. Um, you mentioned your late wife, Jan, who passed away tragically in March of, uh, 2017. And I'm wondering, um, if that didn't happen, if you guys were still together, do you think you'd still be working or do you think that you are working because you're home alone? Well, that's a good question. I kind of think that, uh, being home alone and working is, they go hand in hand here. I'm an alpha male. I'm a people person. I, I, like, I like to think. And, uh, but at the off, the opportunity to work for Tony Khan and AEW came along, she would have encouraged it because she knew that's what made me the happiest outside of being with her than my, you know, being, being married to her, that my work was extremely important to me. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's been a deal where I've gone through this evolution of where, you know, I, I know, I know now, and I didn't want to admit it then, that guys like me really aren't supposed to make it on television. I got a Southern accent. I got nice cheeks. I can't smile because of Bell's palsy. Uh, I'm a little bit hard to produce because I like to play. I like to sing my own music. I don't need you writing my music for me. If I can't do a good job, Ariel, then get somebody else. Go to the pen. You take your lefty or your righty, bring them in, and close the game. Uh, that never happened. Well, it happened kind of, but I guess in this world. But I wasn't supposed to make it, so I've overcome. I keep fighting to, for for uh, respect. I keep fighting for credibility. Tonight on TV, I'll work as hard as I could possibly work. 
I don't call nothing in. It's just not another Monday, Wednesday night of TV for me. Every Wednesday night's a destination for, for my work and my career. But I think if she was here, she'd be loving this Airbnb I'm in and the beaches across the street. And, uh, cause I would have been happy and she loved to, to see me happy. And, uh, she was the best man, my best friend. It's just hard to do that. And of course, Chad Gaspar, we found out today that golly, I mean, what a nice guy, real family man, great father, probably one of the most positive guys I've ever been around on a day to day basis. Really? Yeah. They're real good, real great attitude of life. He had big dreams outside of wrestling, involving creative. <clears throat> Filmmaking, screenwriting. He'd been working on a project for a long time, but he's one of the nicest guys that I, that I helped, that we had on our roster. You know, one of my guys, you know, and, and it's just a, when you lose anybody like that, you know, it's like the, like I mentioned the Owen thing briefly. There's not a, there's not a week goes by that I don't think of Owen Hart. Hmm. It's not like, oh yeah, Owen, it's, you know, it's not just the anniversary of, his, of that accident. It's every week. Something reminds me of him. I don't, sometimes I see somebody play, play practical jokes on TV. I think, oh, uh, and I see guys doing aerial things, high flying stuff. I think of Owen. He did it as good or not better than anybody out there. And it meant something because he knew when to incorporate it within his little game plan. It just wasn't a filler to give me this here to here. He had a reason for everything. So that was last night was hard to watch. Uh, Quite frankly, and again, it was just such a trap. So, so unfortunate. He's a Chad Gaspar and Owen have a lot in common. They're two guys, Ariel, that I can't recall off the top of my head anybody ever saying in the wrestling business, which is wrought with jealousy and insecurities that they, uh, uh, nobody said a bad thing about. Hmm. They loved the guy. And the Owen was that way, and, and of course, and, and Chad was. To a lesser degree, because he wasn't wrestling royalty like one of the arts. And I say that in all respect, not in a right. sarcasm. But both those guys, uh, that it was a tough day. This has been a tough week in that regard. Two guys reliving Owen's deal and then uh, in the Shad situation. Died a hero, saved his son. But uh, hopefully uh, the wrestling community can gather them together and help uh, the family financially you know, kind of find some solidarity. I wanted to ask you about not only the the Owen episode, which aired last night on Vice, but uh, that whole Dark Side of the Ring um, second season, because I I thought of you and I sympathized with you while watching last night, also while watching the Chris Benoit episodes, because there aren't any WWE executives, representatives interviewed in these pieces. And you were in a very high position back then during these two tragedies. And it almost feels like you have to answer questions that maybe shouldn't be asked of you. Do you feel like you are put, and I appreciate your voice there because, you know, and I appreciate Jim Cornette being there as well, but, you know, you were very high up in the company during these times, and yet there's no one else that, you know, there's no McMahon family, etc. Do you feel like you are having to answer questions in these interviews for the documentaries that maybe shouldn't be asked of you or that you shouldn't be asked to answer these questions? Sometimes I'm put in a spot, Ariel, because I don't, I, I am that surrogate. Right. And, uh, it's not a great role. And so, and I'm also, because I'm not, <clears throat> after 26 years, uh, in WWE, now if I make a critique, oh, JR's bitter. Oh mm-hmm. my God. He, he's really bitter. I'm not bitter. 
you know, un- good. But I think something like the, the one is, would, would you have stopped the show? Yeah. Well, that's easy to determine now. That happened in 1999. There was no precedent for the damn thing. So I don't know what I would have done that night. I'm not saying I ought to stop, but, but once how you heard Martha put it, the crime scene, all the, all these things involved, uh, I thought, yeah, I think I would have stopped it. But on that night, because we, again, you're, you're slick with it, man. You're right in the face. And how do you react? And there's no, again, no precedent. We haven't been through this before. We haven't had a drill on when this happened. So, uh, but all these years later, I say, sure, we probably should have stopped the show for all the right reasons. But on that night, the last thing I was uh, thinking about was the show stopping as a broadcaster and setting up mere feet where Owen fell was uh, just get me getting through the night. And I could, uh, this is the honest truth, man. I cannot tell you the main event on that show right now as we, you and I talking, Ariel, to save my soul. Mm. I can't remember. Uh, I've seen it because of the interviews. I know Jeff Jarrett was doing something after that match with Deborah. But other than that, I couldn't tell you what, what else was on the card. Everything, I blocked everything, I blocked everything out. And I don't want to relive it, but I relived the hell out of it last night. It's not a good night's sleep for me. Uh, so, but nonetheless, I, I, I'm, uh, I, I guess I was supposed to be there. I guess I was supposed to be there. Now I saw some unfair criticism of Kevin Dunn. Here's the deal. All this, the, the, you can only imagine the chaos going on behind backstage, yeah. right? You can only yeah. imagine. And so Kevin was trying to get all his stuff together. Where are we going next? Are we going to continue? Are we not going to continue? What are we going to stay on the schedule? And so he says, JR, we're going to have to come back for an on-camera, and you, you need to give an update on Owen. Well, Kevin thought that Vince or somebody else had given me the update on my headset. I said, Kevin, I don't know the update. Nobody said anything. He said, JR, Owen's dead, and you're back in 10. So I got 10 oh. seconds to figure out what I'm going to say. But Kevin didn't say it in, in a district. He got a lot of flack. He was even trending on Twitter at some, some, some rank. Yeah. But he misunderstood that. He said what he had to say. We're not talking about dissertations here. You know the stuff. We, I'm back in 10 seconds. I don't need you in my ear for a whole 10 seconds. Tell me what you need. Count me in. Let me go. And that's what we did on that deal. So Kevin was just doing his job, and, and he did a good job that night, too, in, in all this chaos. Because, again, everything was very, very, uh, uh, you know, unpredictable, unrehearsed. So I don't know what to tell you, man. I, I, but I'm asked a lot of questions that I can't answer. Why didn't Vince stop the show? Well, you know, maybe I'll ask Vince. Right. How about that? Oh, he's not available. Oh, so I get it. Right. So your answer is, I don't know what was going on in his mind. All I know is, is that we're all scrambling. There was a, we still had hope that, that at the very beginning that Owen could make it. He could survive. That's what we were all focused on. The injury, the fall. And can he, can he, can he survive? We thought he could. Uh, but you know, we were hopeful. We were hopeful, obviously. And then that's when I got the word from Kevin that, you know, that he'd passed and, uh, you know, he had to, he had to go do your thing, man. And, uh, but it was a, it was a chilling day. The one I don't ever want to relive, Ariel. I mean, I, 
I was glad I got to say something about it. I love the show. Uh, the the uh, the show, the dark side. That's, I thought last time was great. The access to Owen, family. Uh, I'm very. I was very excited to find out that his son's now an attorney. Mm. I thought that was really cool. Good looking kid, you know. Uh, and you know, if Owen's still alive, that there'd been some nudging, maybe. Well, you know, I want to try the rest of the business. You know, yeah. we might want to do the shot. But the, the young man and the young lady, Athena's beautiful. She's a journalist. They've all become more educated. I'd say Martha has done an amazing job of restructuring her family unit after the tragedy of losing her, her husband. I'm very, I was very impressed with her, quite frankly. It was it was beautiful to see his children. I had never seen them before, uh, certainly not at this age. And it was really cool to see that his daughter is a uh, a journalist or an aspiring journalist, since that's an industry that I care deeply about. I, sure. I want to give you a compliment. I hate to give it to you because of the circumstances, but I really think till this day that what you did that night, May of 1999, was the most impressive thing that I've seen a broadcaster do since Walter Cronkite announced that JFK had been assassinated. And, and I honestly think that in many respects, what you did was a lot tougher because you were sitting right there and you watched it with your own two eyes and you knew him personally as a friend yeah. and a colleague. I can't believe that you did it with that kind of grace and class. So you don't need to hear it from me. It means nothing, but you know, and well, I know you're, yeah. you're still torn up about it, but uh, you know, I just wanted to commend you on that because reliving it last night, blown away by how you were able to do that. Thanks, Ariel. Well, you know, look, I, I guess the good Lord was heading my back. Because I don't even remember what I said. I, I, I never watched that show. I watched the uh, the uh, the pay per view, writing books. To, when I'm writing about Owen of that night in Kansas City, I went back and, and watched the show. At least up to his part. Uh, but I, I, I lots of stuff I just didn't remember. And so then it's like when I watched it last night, I thought I was healed. All these wounds are. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're good. It might be a little scarring, but we're going to be all right. And they they were they were gaping. I just I, I didn't feel I didn't want to go to bed when it was over. I wanted to sit and contemplate. Nothing affected me like that, you know. Uh, there's been other guys, you know, Ben Wallace suicide, murder suicide, but we weren't there, like you said. You know, Brian Tillman's death in Minnesota, we weren't there. This situation was. We were right there, mm. mere feet. And like I said on the, on the show, I was I watched my monitor guy. So I'm watching the monitor, and I happened to look up and see something, look at something, and that's when Owen came into my line of sight. And it was just like a blur. And that then and Lawler had seen it all. Uh, so uh, it was just horrible, horrible. And I'm uh, still. Troubled by it. Got a, a, a big time player hit me last night and said, man, I was really impressed. I couldn't remember how you did that, blah, blah, blah. And I said, you know, it's, it affects me every day. Mm. There's, when tragedies happen and, and people are taken before their time, Owen's the greatest example that I go back to and say, well, Owen Hart was way taken way before his time. So um, I hope people watch it, especially new fans that don't know who Owen is. They've heard of Brett, the hit man. They've heard of Owen very casually. This was, uh, I thought the guys did a phenomenal job on that show. And I was glad I could at least speak my mind. I had no idea what was going to be left in or out. You know that stuff, though. Sure. You interview for five hours and then you get yeah. three sentences or something. That's fine. It's their deal. But I, I was impressed with the whole thing. And the, 
the effort they gave, they put in to talk to Martha and the kids. Excellent. Excellent thought. You may have been asked this question before, but I'm just curious after everything you've done and you still got plenty more time to, to create new memories. What, what are you most proud of as far as your wrestling career has gone? I'm probably the, the most proud of, uh, the talents that are, that my group was able to sign, uh, giving opportunities to guys who wanted to live their dreams, you know, signing the Hardy Boys who are 17 and 18 or bring them to TV and they're, they're wrestling in their homemade wrestling attire that they sewed on their mother's sewing machine, their late mother. Guys like that, you know, uh, seeing John Cena at Indy in, in LA and he's, I think he was doing some limo driving, uh, furniture company stuff and wrestling as an Indy prototype. And then I get back, I take a red eye from LA back to, to Stanford or to LaGuardia. And, uh, I tell Vince, I go to the office. I've been on the plane all night. I says, I just found our, our a main eventer for in five years for WrestleMania. And he told me, he said, you're hallucinating. <laughs> go home and take a shower. <laughs> go back to work. But I think guys like that, you know, the Lesnar hire was great, Kurt. Then, and then reaching out and giving guys that next step, like the Dudleys, they've been around a long time. They've been in ECW trying to get paid. When the check coming, well, this is going to happen. A little martial law there in that uh, rebellious organization, which I was a fan of. Uh, guys like that, Ariel, you were, you know, that one class we had with Brock in it, Cena in it, Batista, Randy Orton, Shelton Benjamin, Mark Henry, all of there at OVW. It wasn't fancy like the Performance Center, but all we did was create stars. Mm. And they, some of them are still playing. You know, here's this week, one of the major storylines there is uh, Edge and uh, Randy. Mm. I signed both guys. And I'm proud of the heck of it. And so you, you, you're proud of their success. You mourn their losses uh, and their, their setbacks. But I think that's the biggest thing. I'll always probably be known for my voice of WrestleManias and Raw and all those things, and hopefully now AEW. Uh, but I think my greatest accomplishment to date, qualified with that, is talent administration, scouting, getting the system in place, the guys we hired, you know, Give Mick Foley, who had been a journeyman guy out there, give him a chance to come work in his home territory, what he'd already been turned down two or three times. Uh, so uh, I, I just uh, really think that's the key thing. And now you see these guys are older. They're, you know, they got teenage children. Hmm. They're itch, they're playing their, they're sending their kids to college. They live in a nice home. They got, they got a life. They've got a life. And if in some small way I could, I could, I help them facilitate that life. That's what I'm most proud of. And and by the way, I'm just curious. I know you weren't there at the time, but wrestling has been in the news uh, this week in many respects. Um, it was featured on the Last Dance docu series on ESPN when yeah. they uh, they chronicled Dennis Rodman going to uh, Nitro and doing his whole deal with the NWO. I know you were at WWE at the time, but do you recall that? And were you surprised that they were able to pull off a deal like that to get him away from the finals to appear on Nitro? Absolutely shocked. <laughs> but it, it would not have happened with, with, with anybody but Dennis Rodman. Right. You wouldn't even probably ask anybody else because Rodman was a free spirit, you know, all that good stuff, man. And I, I, I as a matter of fact, I, when I was officiating college basketball, 
in the Oklahoma Intercollegiate Conference, NAI schools, way back in the day, uh, I, I called a couple of Robins games at Southeastern Oklahoma. So I officiated basketball, wow. basketball and football. But he, uh, I had some games that he played in. And he was pretty amazing. And he was an amazing offensive player. He wasn't, no, he, he was a, he, he could slither it around like a worm. He got a lot of rebounds. But I remember him picking up garbage points around the basket because he could rebound. But he scored a lot of points for a guy that's not known for scoring points. So that was kind of cool. It was a great get. Uh, Eric, Eric Bischoff did a hell of a job on, uh, on, on hurting the chickens from that little deal. You know, getting everybody there on time. They're getting them on TV, uh, teasing all the egos. So they kept it simple. A couple of chair shots and, you know, whatever. But, uh, yeah, I was shocked. But, boy, it was good booking. It was good. I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know how that thing did financially, but I'm thinking probably when they're better pay-per-views, I don't believe you got a lot of external publicity. That's why you hire these guys. We got Mike Tyson coming to work with us on Saturday night. Somebody said, what's he going to do? So, well, he's there to present the first TNT trophy or belt to either Cody or to uh, Lance Archer. Now, that's the official word. Mm-hmm. You're going to bring Mike Tyson, who's been hitting the heavy bag, to uh, Jacksonville on pay-per-view on Saturday, and he's not going to get physical with somebody? Come on. Too good an opportunity. Can't miss these opportunities to be missed. So, uh, so Mike will be with us on that deal. Uh, have you seen his workout videos? Oh my God. Blown away. Absolutely blown away. Ooh. And the guy that he's working out with is a very famous MMA coach, Rafael Cordero, who I spoke to about it. Um, and it seems like there's something there. What do you think? There's, there's money there. Yeah. <laughs> if, if somebody could look, how easy would it be to promote Mike in a, in a match that was a, Three rounds. Right. Three two-minute rounds. Something like that. To book him at his age in a traditional, the old 10 or a 12 or a 15 is ridiculous. Why would you even – you're inferring it may go 10 or, 10 or 12 or 15. It's not. Petit's going to sit in. and But there's a lot of guys out there, I'm sure, who would like a payday to step in the ring with Mike. If it's done like an exhibition – or a television event, I mean, real, not, you know, not, not, uh, not fiction, but real, but keep the time frames in, in place. Uh, I think it's a moneymaker. Mm. It's this new programming era. It's new programming. It's, you know, content is king. You know that content is king. So somebody's going to try to jump on this deal. And because I think it, I think it's got pay per view potential or prime time potential, uh, quite frankly. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing Mike. You know, Mike's one of the great, Rest, pro wrestling historians of all time. Uh, it's incredible. I don't know that he can name the presidents. Mm-hmm. I don't know how he did in American history in Brooklyn that, or Bronx, wherever he's from, which of the boroughs he was from. But, uh, uh, I think Brooklyn. Yeah. Uh, but he can, he can recite chapter and verse on, on pro wrestling history. He grew up as a child of that genre. He had a television. He didn't have great parenting, apparently. He watched TV, and he liked wrestling. So I, I found out that. We, we, I worked with him in, in the Shawn Michaels, Steve Austin thing way back in the 90s. And uh, we've kept in good contact since. He loves to talk wrestling. He's an eye, and he's, he's, he's entertaining. And, you know, we, I know that some people have complained about, well, why did you guys use Mike Tyson? Well, look, he's paid his debt to society years and years ago. 
he did what he had to do. He did. He, he served his time. He had a sentence and he served it. Uh, so I don't know. We have to forgive a little easier than we are sometimes. I think that I have no issue with Mike Tyson. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Our talents are excited. Can you imagine somebody that's never met Mike? You got to still social distance, but there he is. Mm-hmm. So it's be kind of cool for him to join us on the, on the weekend on the pay-per-view. So it was a lot of fun. I love Mike. Final question for you, Jim. And again, thank you so much for the time. This has been amazing. I could keep you for three hours, but I know you got to go uh, call some matches tonight. That's on TNT this evening, uh, AEW Dynamite. And of course, as you mentioned, pay-per-view, double or nothing this uh, Saturday. And I'm happy that you brought up Mike because what a get that is for you guys. Someone who the wrestling fans know, obviously, but the boxing fans, and he's in the news. He's relevant right now. So that's just a great get on your part. I'm just curious, um, as we conclude, this era that you're working in right now, this company that you're working for right now, the wrestlers that you're working alongside, does this remind you of another period in your great career? Like, are you reminded of your early WCW days here? And what do you compare what you're going through right now, what you're experiencing and who you're working with right now to the early days of your career? Or is this so different and so fresh that you can't compare it to anything? We're trying to have an athletic uh, presentation area where we're, we're, he- we're heavier on sports than the entertainment component. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it, there's, and I know that the Mid South and the UWF that Cowboy Bill Watts promoted for many years, it was a big influence to Tony Khan. When Tony Khan can recite verbiage that I said on those shows, which by the way were before he was born, mm-hmm. uh, I'm impressed. He loves the the philosophical aspects of writing TV and uh, you know, for a guy that's immersed with the Jaguars ownership and and other, not just ownership, but he's got a job there. Uh, And then you got, uh, and he's got the Fulham football club in England and AEW and he's 35 years old. He's got a life also. Uh, It's pretty amazing, but I think he is very strongly influenced by the feel the philosophical feel, not the look, because bodies change and ring attire changes. and There's HD now and all those good things. But I think the philosophy of it, it'd be like saying a football player, a football coach, we're going to win with great defense because if you can't score, you can't beat me. So if I can keep you in the end zone, there are limit your opportunities there. So we're going to emphasize defense. In the kicking game, because I want to make you, I want to play the, the field advantage. It's not all about who's playing split in or who's playing the slot back. It's the philosophy of blocking and tackling and logic. And that's what we're trying to get to right now. So I think that's kind of what it reminds me of. And it's exciting for me. You know, it's, uh, it's a whole new variation. I'm produced differently. The scripts are differently. The show's written unique, uniquely. You know, we had a big production meeting last night on, uh, on, uh, conference call. And it maybe it lasted, I think, twenty minutes. Hmm. Twenty minutes, maybe thirty, max, max, max thirty. And I've been in production meetings that lasted three or four hours for the same two-hour show, overthinking. And then now you can take the other side of the issue and say, "Wait a minute, we just care more. We want to make sure we got every eye dotted, every okay, bullshit. Come on, sorry, but come on, man. Uh, don't overthink pro wrestling. Don't overthink MMA." It's still going to be basic fundamental stuff. The politics outside the octagon are different. Are always going to be evolving because that's the nature of the beast. But when you when the 
when it's, when it's time to fight, you're right back to basics. And, I, and that's what we're trying to do, get back to basics. And I think people will see that, you know, uh, on tonight. And then we'll sit again Saturday night to join us on our pay-per-view. I don't know. I don't think I've ever done a pay-per-view with uh, nobody in the crowd, ever. And I did my first paper. I did. I was on the ground floor doing pay-per-view back in the eighties. You know, so it's going to be a good week, buddy. It's going to be a good week, and uh, I'm glad you reached out to me on uh, Saturday. I, I, I thought I might see you there, but I understand obviously why not. Yeah. I don't know why I was thinking that. But <laughs> my naivete. It was a great. Uh, it was a great photo seeing you there. It was really cool, and I'm glad that I reached out as well. And I'm appreciative that you responded and that you took an hour out of your day to talk to us today. It's uh, it's so great talking to you and picking your brain. You know, I don't know if I ever told you, but uh, I attended WrestleMania 18 in Toronto and I went to the uh, fan access. I was all alone. My friends only showed up a couple of days later and I only waited in two lines. I only wanted to meet two sets of people. I waited in Tori Wilson's line because, you know, I was 19 <laughs> years old at the time. I mean, can yeah. you, blame me? you can't blame me for that one. No, no. <laughs> and you I waited in line to meet you and Jerry Lawler. And uh, I wanted to meet you as, as someone who loved broadcasting because I, you know, I thought so highly of you and uh, love everything about what you've done in your career. So to get to know you now and to talk to you like this is just a real treat. So thank you so much, Jim. And I'm so happy that you're getting this opportunity and that we can still hear you. And I hope that you get to do it for 20, 30 more years. I'm living my best life, Ariel. I'm living my best life. Uh, I've been blessed with this opportunities. And uh, as anybody that listens to my work this week especially is going to see I'm taking full advantage of it. One of the great things that I see online is that it sounds like the announcers of the AEW are having fun. And we are because we're steering our own ship out there. We're playing our own music for better or for worse. And uh, I find I find that to be extremely exciting and challenging. So uh, it'll be good. But I appreciate your time, buddy. I'm proud of you. I told you that. I'm gonna, I started with that. I'm going to end with that. I'm very <laughs> proud you. of what you're building. You're, you're, you're building a great brand, the Ariel Hawani brand. And uh, I'm, I'm, I know this is only going to go crazy. So uh, I'm, I'm happy for you and your family. And stay safe and uh, keep doing what you're doing. And same to you. In addition to AEW, check out Under the Black Hat, the book that JR mentioned, which you can get anywhere. JRsBarbecue.com, BBQ.com to be exact. All yeah. the sauces, everything. Uh, continued success, my friend. All the best this evening, Saturday, and beyond. Thanks again, Jim. You bet, Earl. Thank you, buddy. Take care. No joke, I could have talked to that man for another hour. I loved every second of it. And then there was, there's obviously a lot of things that I would love to ask him about, um, from back in the day, but we took up an hour of his, uh, of his day and he's getting ready to go to the arena and, and, and do another show. So I didn't want to take up any more time. It was great to pick his brain about all of that. And you could see, you know, and you can hear, uh, we did it over Zoom so I could see him as well while we were talking. Uh, you know, the pain when he speaks about his wife and Owen Hart. The man has been through a lot, but he's also given us so many great moments and it was really cool to see him in attendance. And I love, I know he's a huge MMA fan, so I love hearing his thoughts on MMA in this new era, empty arenas and comparing that to pro wrestling and, you know, the challenges because you can't put on the same show right now, whether you're doing MMA or pro wrestling. And they have to deal with a hell of a lot more because they're an entertainment um, company in, in MMA, just let the fighters go out and they'll do all the work themselves. There's a little more that goes into it. So the psychology behind it all was really fascinating. So once again, check out his new book, Under the Black Hat. Check out his uh, great line of sauces. JRSBBQ.com is where you can check it out and check out AEW as well. Thank you once again to the great Jim Ross. All right, now time for everyone's favorite segment of the week. It is time for TST's Minimalist Tip of the Week, and it is brought to you by Modelo. Setting the gold standard for authentic Mexican beer since 1925. Modelo, brewed for those 
with a fighting spirit. TST's Minimalist Tip of the Week. I think the highlight of the entire podcast, and probably the most unexpected answer to a question you've ever asked, P.T. Barnum as the yeah. best promoter of all time. I love that. How about that? That I'm was very, assuming, that was very unexpected. I'm assuming you know who P.T. Barnum is. You probably don't know who all these uh, pro wrestling people that we were talking about are, but you know P.T. Barnum. Everyone knows P.T. Barnum. Oh, of course. Yeah, big circus guy, but pro wrestling, not, not uh, really? my alley. No, not at all. I've, I've never been to the circus before. I've never even seen a circus before. I, I've never seen a circus advertised before. I, I don't come from a circus area. I, I've, I don't know if I've met anyone who's ever been to the circus. Wait, so why did you just say you're a big circus guy? It's, it's a joke. You don't get oh, the, the young no. person slang here. I don't know if that's slang, to be honest. You don't strike me as a joking kind of, you're, you're very cut and dry. It's black and white with you. So you're I don't not. Know, Ariel. I'm full of surprises, as I think you probably learn more and more each week. Yes, I've learned a lot of uh, interesting things about you, like the time that you went on this hike and you were just sort of meandering for four hours. You didn't have the app and whatnot. But I'm very curious to see or hear what your uh, your tip is this week. So please, right. do tell, my friend. So I want to tout the benefits here of minimalism. As I alluded to uh, when I was telling that story a few weeks ago, I am in the process of moving. I'm not moving to the cabin, unfortunately. It didn't work out. But I am moving to a new place. And why I love minimalism is because it is so easy for me to move. The moving process is such a pain for people who have lots of possessions. And so this is a a huge reason why I tout minimalism and why I've adopted it is because I love the feeling of knowing that I can pick up and move my life at any point and not have it be a, a big, long process because a lot of people don't end up moving when they kind of want to. Maybe they want to make a change in their life or they want to move to a new place or they want to go to another location. But it's just like, uh, it's so much work. I have to move so much stuff. I have to get help. I have to pay people. I have to get trucks. And, you know, maybe I'll just stay here. Even if they're dissatisfied with their lives, they'll stay here. With me, with how little stuff I have, the moving process is like a two-hour process involves some lifting of things, putting it in the car. I don't need a truck or anything, and that's why I love minimalism because I know I get great comfort out of knowing that I can change my life in an instant and not have it be this whole major inconvenience. I feel so light when I'm moving, and it's a great feeling. That's why I love traveling with just a backpack, and that's why I love moving. I've lived in I've lived in uh, like eight different places in the last five years of my life, and I love that. I love being a chameleon. I love changing. I love putting myself in new new um, environments so that I can adapt to those environments and learn and grow. And you can't necessarily do that if you're always stuck in one place because you're afraid of that change. So two follow-up questions. Number one, I do agree with you on the moving front. Uh, the, the thought of moving, especially right now in my life with three kids, very daunting because we have so much stuff. And so I, you know, I wonder like how many pieces of furniture do you think you have to move? Right now, I mean, I had, I have my mattress, but I have a bed in a box and I do not have a bed frame. So honestly, I just kind of fold up my bed in half and I can put that in the back of my car. And that is the only furniture I have. And I have this little, uh, this little desk that I'm currently using for a workspace. Uh, that, that is it. And I have a little like foldable chair. So, okay. So a couple things, nothing too big. You don't have to, but not, nothing that requires more than a car. You have a TV? I do. Yeah. But it's small. Okay. Um, so yeah, I get what you're saying. Now here's my big question. Eventually, I presume you want to get married. You want to settle down. You want to have a family, right? 
I don't know, Ariel. You got mad at me a few weeks ago when I said that I never wanted to have kids. Yeah, I'm not, so, I'm not sure. Maybe that'll change, but that is, that is my stance right now. Well, so I'm happy that you bring this up because I wonder, correct me if I'm wrong, if minimalists are selfish. Would you be able, if you met the love of your life, but she wasn't a minimalist, she was perhaps a hoarder. She was someone who likes to collect things and she wants to have kids. Would you be able to adapt to her lifestyle? Would you be able to find middle ground? Would you be able to have children and have all their toys everywhere? Or do you feel like, hey, this is my way? I mean, you alluded to this not that long ago when you went home and your parents and you guys were butting heads and you had to go back to Connecticut and all this stuff. Is it fair to say that minimalists, while great and while there are perks like the moving perk, are also selfish? That is very fair to say, and that is something I'm very uh, straightforward with when discussing my uh, desires for not having children. It is that I can't see myself, at least at this point in my life, I can't see myself having to care so much for another individual where I basically have to give up so many of my freedoms. You know, if I have a child, I can't just go anywhere I want because I, I have to tend to their needs. And so that, that is a big concern of mine is that, I mean, you could say it's a criticism being selfish. I, I personally like enjoy doing my own thing all the time and I can't do my own thing all the time. And, you know, I enjoy a, a nice nights of sleep. If I have a child that's waking me up at 3 a.m., I can't get a nice night's of sleep. So at this point in my life, I am still so much focused on me that I'm not ready or I can't fathom at some point thinking about dedicating that much time to another individual and it's not i'm not saying that like if i were to have a kid i wouldn't love love that kid of course i would but i just can't imagine that and again i'm sure you know i'm 24 i'm sure my attitudes on this will change at some point but that is my stance right now and also um you learned uh, alluded to perhaps meeting a a woman who uh is not a minimalist or is a hoarder mm-hmm. if i'm being honest if she is a hoarder we're probably not going to get along wow. uh, so she's probably not the right right choice again you can't you, you can't have such a closed mind you can't say oh i'm not going to you know you have to have an open mind when you go through this thing called life and so you can't say imagine you meet this wonderful person who does charitable work who likes to you know be as unselfish as possible and do great things and do this and that and is just such a wonderful person who brings out the best in you and who is a great partner and all this stuff but she likes to collect stamps you're gonna be like no we're done <laughs> no no that, that, that is fine that is fine again i mean it all depends on the situations with minimalists we have to be flexible and always adapting to well, yeah that's what i wonder as i just yeah. said uh, you i mean like there is a there is a fine line for example i'm moving in right now with a woman she's my friend oh. she's not oh. a not a romantic interest oh. or anything she oh. is not a minimalist she has a lot of baking oh. supplies she was telling me so i'm gonna have to have an honest conversation with her be like hey these are my expectations for things, these are, hey, too much stuff freaks me out. Can we come up with a way that um, we can organize this stuff so that it is not going to freak me out or cause me anxiety? There's things that cause you anxiety, and too many things cause me anxiety. So we will have that honest conversation, and it will be respectful. I will say, hey, these are my expectations, and hopefully she will tell, turn around and say to me, hey, these are my expectations for you. How can we go about this in a nice way while being very respectful. And that's a conversation I'm looking forward to having. Wow. Okay. I look forward to the, uh, the conclusion of that conversation and the report back because something tells me it is not going to go well for you, my friend. Just 
my hunch, but maybe you are able to adapt. I just don't have a lot of faith in it right now. I would like to see you adapt. I would like to see you be a little less selfish and a little less, you know, hard headed and things of that nature. I mean, he didn't come up, I didn't come up with the name TST, you know, just for, you know. For, <laughs> oh yeah, no, I run a tight ship, not only on you, but on all aspects of my life. If you haven't noticed by now. Yes. Speaking of know. faith, a lot of people, um, I have faith in the fans who oh. are giving us uh, some five star reviews. Like this oh. one from uh, Kev Hansen, five stars. I look forward to Hawani's episodes of MMA breaking news every week, but man, you got DC on there and it's hilarious. You guys make a great team. Keep them coming. Thank you, sir. Any, I thought you were going to read a few of them. I will. I've got another one here. Do you want okay. a, a good or bad one? Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm more of a positive guy. I mean, how bad is it is the question. That's not that bad. Nah, eh, I think we'll, we're good with one. I don't care. Just, just read it. I don't give a crap. All right. So the bad one from Jake the Snake 211 used oh. to be a great podcast. One star. I like DC. One, I, star. one star. And I think Ariel has in the past, in the past, been a great MMA journalist. Now the episodes okay. are comprised of DC talking smack to Ariel, Ariel doing his cringy laugh, then talking <laughs> about the NBA for the rest of the time. Yeah. I mean, Actually inaccurate, but okay. Fine. <laughs> yeah, I we didn't talk about the NBA at all last week, but okay. And this is, uh, he says, less BS, less cringy laughing, and get back to talking about MMA, please. I will defend you on that. I think you guys do a great job of talking about MMA, and you really don't talk about the NBA. I mean, you talked about the last dance, but everyone was talking about the last dance. So I sure kind of that's fine. I mean, he could have his opinion. Uh, I love doing the show, and I've gotten so much feedback, positive feedback about the show, and it seems like everyone is enjoying it as well. That I'm enjoying this sort of new normal that we have where it's DC and Helwani on Mondays. And by the way, if you miss the interviews, they're still around. All you have to do is go to ESPN's uh, MMA YouTube page, youtube.com slash ESPN MMA and uh, check them out. Cause on, on Monday I interviewed Angela Hill. I interviewed Cheeto Vera. Who else did I interview? I interviewed Edson Barbosa. Uh, yesterday there's the Anthony Smith interview that you just heard. That's up there as well. And I've been doing a, bunch of them on random days so i've actually liked this and it's brought me back to my early days of my career where i could just do i don't have to do it just on monday if i want to do an interview on a thursday or a friday now we have the ability to do so and so mondays on the pod feed you got dc and hawani on youtube you get dc and hawani as well but you also get the standalone interviews and on wednesday you get sort of a mini version of what used to be the monday show multiple interviews different voices a couple weeks ago we had michelle watterson jeremy stevens tony ferguson this week of course jim ross and anthony smith this has been nice so i like this new normal and i hope you guys do as well and based on the feedback that i'm getting it seems like you guys really enjoy it i don't think we've taken our foot off the gas by any stretch uh it's just adapting and overcoming and i'm really enjoying this and uh, i would actually vote for this to continue for many, many months, especially the Monday format, because I really, really do enjoy that. And I think sooner rather than later, we're taking over ESPN. You heard it here first. On that note, you could hit my damn music. I am out of time. Thank you very much to TST. Thank you very much to the great Anthony Smith. Thank you very much to the legendary Jim Ross. And as always, thanks to all of you. Thank you for downloading and rating and reviewing and subscribing, even negative Nancy's like Jake the Snake over there. I love you all. If you listen to the show, if you download it, if you review us, if you subscribe, that means the world to me. And that allows us to keep doing this and lets the powers that be know that what we're doing is appreciated by all of you. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Thanks for tuning in. And thank you for joining me on this week's episode of the program. Thanks, by the way, to Shippo and Modelo for their support. I appreciate you guys as well. And once again, 
thanks to all of you. Have a great rest of your week. Enjoy the holiday weekend if you're celebrating. And by the way, we will be back on Monday. Even though it's Memorial Day, we will be back because we don't stop. We don't sleep. New episode of DC and Hawani coming your way on Monday. So we'll talk to you then. Take care.